Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Bond by Numbers, episode two. Our first film feature today, GoldenEye. Josh, how you doing, pal? You out there in the airwaves, floating around the CCP satellites in space? Yes. <laughs> was that your Connery impersonation? That, that was my Connery impersonation. Well, it's it's awfully misplaced, you know. We're not looking at a Connery film today. Very well. I'll be, I'll be more Irish. I'll be more. No, that's like more British. I can't do it. <laughs> I'll give up yeah. before it before it gets worse. Just quit while you're ahead, buddy. Yes, so welcome to Bond by Numbers, the show where uh, <clears throat> myself and Josh Bowman, the BFG, looking through the Eon production James Bond films. And this is our fifth series production together. Uh, we're just coming off the back of a real massive Sherlock Holmes investment. And I don't know about you, man, but this is, this is obviously, it's great to be here and great to be doing this. But I have felt, strangely, I have felt a little bit of Sherlock withdrawal. Not Sherlock the show, Sherlock Holmes withdrawal. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, you always got your uh, 7% solution for that, right? I do, yeah. I just think, you know, when you do 20, 22 months of something, uh, you're, that's all you're kind of dedicating your time to reading and researching, you know, with a, you know, a little recreation here and there. That's a big project. That takes up a lot of brain space, a lot of gray matter. I find it strange that there's no more stories to read. I guess that's really all I mean, yeah. But... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, we're not here to talk about that. That is in the past. You can check out Lighten the Pipes if you're interested in exploring an amateur, enthusiastic, but amateur, uh, yeah, run through the canon of Conan Doyle stories. We're here to talk Good about plug. GoldenEye. Now, what about GoldenEye and what is this show all about? Because if you look online, you don't need another James Bond podcast or another James Bond review series show. These things are out there. And good quality ones as well. So what is it we're, what is it we're hoping to do, Josh? And, and why are we even bothering with a product that seems, on the outside, as, as, as a duplication of work? Because we love Bond. And we don't care if there's other podcasts out there that you do or do not need. This is our podcast. This is our moment. And if you want to enjoy James Bond and have a few laughs and explore the, the movies in a different way than you normally have, uh, with a new set of lenses, I guess you could say, um, where the podcast to go to? Mm -hmm. I I could not agree more. Um, <clears throat> and as we said in episode one, which was kind of the introduction to this whole show, we are going to put a spin on it that hopefully is a little bit unique. And if, like Josh says, you you're going to follow along with us episode by episode, then you can uh, watch the shows and kind of play the home game and get used to the idea of numbering your way through the series. Yes. Now the show is called Bond by Numbers. Uh, what does that mean, Josh? Well, we have a scoring system um, that we that we're going to use, and it's just I think we're, I think it's just it's, it's but I mean that's a more of a literal explanation. Um, I think what it really means is that we're going to the basics. You know, we're not doing anything overly complex or too too deep or anything like that. We're just having fun on a basic level here. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you if not for the fact that we do have numbered segments, which we're going to feature on the show, 1 through 10. All right. So while what you say is correct, uh, we are just basically going through the the, the steps. We're, okay. We're doing so with a structure. Okay. We'll let the record indicate that I failed that test terribly. Mm -hmm. You did fail that test, yes, considering that you were, you were quite supportive of this structure. I am well of, of the structure. Uh, that's definitely true. But the question kind of came out of nowhere. So I was just uh, 
I, I, I found it more of a given than a uh, – I didn't really think I had to clarify that. <laughs> right. I'm just, I'm just yanking your chain, buddy. And so it begins. <laughs> and so it begins. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it began a long time ago. Uh, we're not going to go into much detail today about, about why we're doing this, to be perfectly honest, because we did, we? we did that in episode one. Who are we? We got to tell everybody who we are because we're, we're going to get new li- listeners by of the course, thousands yeah, every yeah. every week. That's right. By the thousands, that's right. Yeah, yeah my name is uh, Scott Powell over here in Dumfries, Scotland. I am a uh, a teacher, but long li- long living Bond fan. Maybe not that long living, but yeah, long enough. It feels long enough. Let me tell you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you, the ying to my yang across the pond in Canada, Ontario, Taylor. Josh Taylor. Taylor, Josh Taylor, all otherwise known as the BFG. True, true, true. Um, we're, here, we're here for action and gadgets and women and fast cars. Mm-hmm. Yes, we are indeed. And let's get on to that, shall we? Uh, we're going to, just as a brief introduction, I suppose, not a brief introduction, a brief uh, preview of, of the way the, the show is set up. We're going to talk about GoldenEye today, which was the first film selected by our roulette selection which is what we do. We've got a beautiful roulette table here. You can hear it clipping along there in the background. That's the table that we use to select the film order for our podcast and for our review study. And at the end of the show is when we select the film. We do it live. Um, Great suspense, I'm sure. Anyone listen to episode one, you're on the edge of your seat as that ball was clicking around. Uh, yeah, we listen to uh, we listen to that ball click around until it settles in a number, which corresponds to a number of the Bond films, the official Eon films. Uh, we will not be studying in this series, Never Say Never Again, or the 1967 Casino Royale. I believe it's 67. 67 or 69, I can't recall. 69, yeah, I'm not sure. Apologies. You think Bond fans would know that, but... Hmm. Well, there, it's not Eon production, so why do we care anyways? I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Yeah. But I mean, Gene, I mean, James Bond... Yeah, and we're not going to be, you know, also be evaluating James Bond Jr. the cartoon series either. <laughs> no, no, we're not going to do that. Although, although I'm pretty sure when we were doing our uh, retrospective on the Ian Fleming books, I think that that did come up a couple times. James Bond Jr.? I think it did, because wasn't there a character that you were quite fond of that was somewhat representative of... Uh, uh, Felix Leiter, but he was called something different. Gordo Leiter, yeah, <laughs> that's right. I remember this now. It's yeah. like it's like it's like his nephew or something, and he and he's like Spicoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High, you know, like uh, uh, Sean Penn's character. You know, oh, like man. the he's like the the surfer dude, right? Actually, he sounded a lot like Michelangelo from Ninja Turtles. It's probably the same guy, same voice actor. Probably is because it would have been about the same time. Mm-hmm. Anyway, by the by, by the by, by the by. Once again, welcome to Bond by Numbers. This is a podcast dedicated to reviewing the official James Bond films as produced by Eon Productions. My name is Scott Powell. My co-host, as always, Joshua Taylor. Real-life cousins, real-life Bond fans. Together, we're just revisiting our love of the franchise and reviewing each film with, hopefully, something you'll find, fun features and analysis. We're going to have some guest speakers as well. One of those has already been online with us for an interview earlier today, Jeff Chapman, and we'll say more about him as the episode evolves. I say, I, I say uh, huzzah, and let's get into it. All right. Well, the first thing to get into, of course, is the title of the film itself. This is Goldeneye, and... Yeah, you'll have guessed it's not chronological. We've just explained why and how we select the way we do. But 
The first thing we need to talk about structurally in our show is a little introduction to it. So, Josh, what was your first introduction to GoldenEye? I was a Bond fan um, in beginning, beginning like in the late '80s, early '90s, and I think uh, movie, and, and I think moving from Kingston to Peterborough in '93, I kind of lost my Bond. Uh, love, I suppose, for a little while. It wasn't love. It's just I guess I got interested in other things going on, and I actually didn't even see. Go- I, I actually wasn't really when GoldenEye came out. It was years after License to Kill, so I wasn't really into Bond at the time. And I ended up seeing that movie. Um, my parents just ra- randomly rented it on a family pizza night, and we, we we I watched the movie, and I liked it overall. I wasn't in the Bond as I used to be. But then, of course, I was too busy into my Nintendo 64 at the time. Inevitably, GoldenEye came out for Nintendo 64. and So you, uh, had, you think, had seen the film before the wave of that game uh, erupted onto your shore. That's correct. Okay, great. So, so way, way leads it, on but, to way. But it kind of rekindled my interest in Bond again, um, which, mm-hmm. is for, which was further developed, uh, as I mentioned on the last show, when I saw you in... Um, uh, for Aunt Barbara's wedding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we, we had a we had a good time then. Well, we my <clears throat> my own first memories of Goldeneye go back to uh, the hiatus. You know, after the after the Timothy Dalton films, I would say is when I was was properly. I, I mean, I can't call myself at the age of ten a Bond fan. You know, I was interested in James Bond because our grandmother, who's also going to be an awesome part of the show today. Um, <laughs> I got an interview with uh, great old Granny O there as well, 93 years old, still kicking, still loving her James Bond. I got her to talk about the film. Uh, yeah, we've got yeah. some high-profile guests on tonight. <laughs> we do. We do have some high-profile guests. Yeah, I'm looking around for Conan O'Brien, but he's, he's just not here. Yeah, um, yeah so you know, watching Bond in the 80s, like you said, um, I was aware of there being a break between the films in 89 to 95. And it was at that time as well that the internet became uh, fashionable within homes and domestic settings you know i mean before 95 yes. really and the computer the, the computer gadgetry and the computer speak in this film is really quite of its time too and uh, I, I i'm interested to pick your brain about that but 95 i remember the internet sort of coming onto the scene and i don't remember seeing goldeneye in cinema but i saw it very very quickly after on video because it was at that time i was collecting the the um the VHS, I remember. The, the, you know, they were all coming back out remastered. Like, yeah, uh, those really nice, those really nice that like the brand new artwork they had for right, them. Yeah. They, they, they were smart. really good. Quite smart artwork. And I was uh, Goldeneye was one of the first, so that must have just been out to video when these were released. I, I probably reckon there was some sort of a tie-in with that. You know, MGM looking to release these films at a time when Bond was just coming back into the public sphere after a little hiatus when there was legal battles and stuff like that, right? First exposure so, to franchises, basically. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm almost positive that my first experience with this film would have been uh, on VHS, uh, having seen a lot of other ones before that. And then, of course, the success of the game. Uh, I didn't have an N64 growing up, but you did. And even though I only saw you once a year or once every year or two, <laughs> we made up for time, man, playing that game, let me tell you. Uh, that was that was probably it, you know, and uh, it went from there, but... Yeah, that, so I'd say nineteen ninety six. I probably saw this after it after it uh, came out in the video, and I don't have the analytics to support my claim. Okay, but I would not be surprised if that video game was greatly responsible for creating a generation of Bond fans. 
I wouldn't be surprised at all. And then, of course, I, I and I remember after GoldenEye came, the game came out. I remember with being my, with my friends, like in '97, so excited about Tomorrow Never Dies coming out in theaters. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, and of course, when that movie came out, that really hit. That really hit the um, uh, ground running. Indeed. Well, uh, let's move on then to talk about this film, get a little background from it. You're, you're going to look at a couple of special features here today, and I'm going to look at a couple of special features as we go through. Uh, we got a little something called Cubby's Corner. You want to say something about that, Josh? Yeah, Cubby just refers to uh, – Cubby is the affectionate term for uh, Alfred R. Broccoli. Uh, or is it, is it Broccoli or Broccoli? Broccoli. It's definitely- uh, then again, who, the, who am I? I don't know. Yeah. Cubby is the affectionate term that his friends and family refer to, and I guess and co-workers refer to Albert R. Broccoli, the founder of the James Bond films through Eon Productions um, s- since the very beginning with Dr. No in 62. Uh, he was really um, just the father of the James Bond uh, film franchise. Um, and of course now his daughter um, Barbara and his stepson uh, Michael G. Wilson, they're kind of taking things over now for him for the past 15 years now, I guess you could say, because he's been dead for, I would say, maybe 20 years now. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so Cubby's Corner is just our little segment uh, that talks about the production of uh, the James Bond film. And we'll be, do- we'll be having a-, a Cubby's Corner with some facts and tidbits uh, each episode. Yeah, so what have you got about that then? Let's, let's just launch into this. You want to talk about the story of Goldeneye? Yeah, I'll get to that. So the last James Bond film was in 1989. That was Licensed to Kill. And it was already at the Cannes Film Festival in 1990. There was James Bond uh, 17 was being advertised. Uh, but then with Dalton as the lead. But what happened is, is that um, the people that he worked with on the screenplay at the time, uh, or Broccoli worked with on, worked with on the production, uh, Richard Malbaum and John Glenn, who directed the last five Bond films. Great Bond director, by the way, John Glenn. Um, now, I know we're looking at this objectively, but I just remembered a lot of the John Glenn Bond films were like my favorites back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually what happened is uh, Broccoli at the time in 1990, he dropped John Glenn, dropped Richard Malbum and went on his own looking for other directors. Uh, there was even like a, a, a treatment already available for Bond 17 that they wanted to do. It had to do with like some adventure out in the uh, out in the out in, um, in, in, the, in the east um, and concerning jewel smuggling and um, an old mentor of Bond's. Uh, but there was issues that happened with MGM in 93. Um, with, te- with with television rights, and that got into a whole issue, and it's just like basically just dodged the the pre production of the, of Bond Seventeen for so long, and Dalton basically by twelfth uh, of April nineteen ninety four, uh, he bows out of the role completely, and then they announce Pierce Brosnan as the as the fifth official James Bond, and and they wanted Brosnan earlier, didn't they? But I believe they wanted C- CBS screwed him a, over. A, a, they wanted Brosnan since a view to a kill, I believe, uh, actually. Yeah, that's right. But CBS uh, screwed him over pretty heavily, didn't didn't they, with the whole Remington Steel thing? It was a whodunit kind of adventure mystery series called Remington Steel that um, Pierce Brosnan was made, first made known to, you know, worldwide worldwide audiences in the 1980s. And, uh, and he, because of the contract with CBS, uh, even though he, you know, the Broccoli's were willing to, you know, eat him up for the role of Bond at that time, 
uh, he could not do it because of the constraints of the contract. Yeah, particularly those constraints, though, became quite acrimonious because CBS had basically decided that it was no longer going to continue with um, Remington Steel, and that would have put Brosnan in a position to go for the Bond role. And there were leaked reports that Brosnan was the choice. And once these reports got out and started getting popular, CBS said, oh, well, we're just going to renege on this one little clause in your contract. And before you know it, sorry, everybody wants you as Bond, but we're yanking that (laughs) cane back and you got to do another season of this. And so it was a real, I think he was quite crestfallen, Brosnan, because he was excited about going into the role in the late 80s and then never had a chance until five or six years later. Yeah, it's it's too bad, and I, I can see it took, it took a long time to get to get where he was, but he did finally make it. You know, the first Irish James Bond, and uh, you know, for his tenure, he did pretty well, from what I remember, and when I'm remem- re-remembering now, going into these uh, movies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so he, after he Bron- was sorry, just to interject. Uh, I mean, we can talk about this in a, as a summative point once we look at all of his films, but I think what you're saying is right. He was a pro. He was kind of a victim of his time in a way because I can't think, and again, going back with these shows is going to help me see, but I can't think of a period where there was more uh, explicit uh, product placement for Bond than the Brosnan years. You know, it's so techno. Everything is techno and everything is, you know, labeled. Omega Omega watches, Ericsson phones, BMW. Yeah, and I feel like he kind of was smothered under that a little bit. And he had to do some pretty ridiculous things just to show badges online or on on screen, you know. So I I do sort of feel bad for him because I felt like there was a a real pool to wade through of that stuff for him. Also, people weren't sure how Bond was going to do because... Uh, both Living Daylights uh, and License to Kill, the only two Timothy Dalton starring Bond films, Bond fatigue had settled in by that point in the late 80s. I guess the Cold War coming to an end and all that sort of thing. Uh, Glasnost, Perestroika. They figured that Bond was a dying element. And that's why there was a lot of tr- trouble, I think, not just with in terms of the contract work. I think there are a lot of people that didn't feel like a Bond film would be a lucrative at the time. Yeah, that's but, a good point. And, good and point. I think... I think that's why that original script for Bond 17 was dropped. Um, even though it was designed to be a Dalton film, I think it was dropped because they had to address some issues about how they, and how what a modern Bond would be like. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what uh, the GoldenEye does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So have you got any other notes or any other stories from the filming itself or any casting info that uh, is, was of interest in your study and your research into it? Not particularly. Um, the the big, of course, the big casting thing was that the previous uh, M, Robert Brown, who was the one who took over after Bernard Lee passed away, uh, he was he is now replaced by uh, a fe- an, an actress, uh, Judy Dench, and uh, I think this was the beginning of what the new Bond era, and uh, even up until like you know the second last Craig film, Judy Dench has been a strong part of the uh, of the of the James Bond film saga. And, yeah, and instrumental, I, I think, in shaping the image of Bond in popular culture. Um, she takes that sexist, misogynist dinosaur, I think, that she speaks of. And I think she turns, I think she's part of the, the shaping him to become a, 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 an action hero, more so than just his own little niche kind of spy genre hero, if you know what I mean. Because mm-hmm. one thing about the, the Brosnan films, um, you can say, is this is machine gun James Bond. I mean, you, you, you have, even the Daniel Craig films, I don't think, match the Brosnan films in terms of the intense action scenes and almost Schwarzenegger-esque action scenes that they have in those movies. Yeah, there's a lot of... There's a, there's a big kill count. There is a big kill count, for sure, yeah. 
All right. So uh, in terms of the film's reception and its revenue, you know, kind of what it pulled out, I got, I got some figures here. Now, this was tough. I got to be honest with you, looking for this info, because there are so many conflicting sources, because some of these are in dollars, some of them are in pounds, you know, I, depending on what site I was accessing, I was getting different figures and, and not hmm. all of not all the figures had been had been um, updated for inflation, you know. Some of them had been, some of them hadn't been. So here, here's what I've got, okay? Released in November uh, 1995 in the United States on the, si- on the 13th, sorry, the 16th uh, in Canada and in the UK on the 24th. Yeah, well, a uh, $60 million production budget. $26 million of that was pulled back during opening weekend. $106 million domestic budget and $356 million worldwide in dollars. Now, License to Kill was actually a box office disappointment for MGM United Artists. Did it make enough money to, like, so it must have made much, much more than License to Kill did. It was a, it was a good box office opening, right? Yeah, I, I believe, adjusted for inflation, that GoldenEye still is in the top seven or eight Bond films of all time. I, I would guess probably Tomorrow Never Dies destroyed it probably in the, in the following year in box office, the following two years in box office. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see when we get there. Um, mm-hmm. It was received, interestingly enough, though, critically, it was lukewarm to warm. Now, I, I looked at a lot of different reviews, and um, I'm, what I've done is I've taken a sample of those reviews. I'm going to share a couple and hopefully be able to go to these writers more than once throughout our series. I'm going to draw on Roger Ebert from the Chicago Sun-Times. Good old Roger. And I'm going to also draw on the writing of Peter Stack from the San Francisco Chronicle. But I have also looked at others too, which is why I feel quite confident in saying that the film was received warm to lukewarm, okay, critically, uh, but more popularly, if you see what I mean. I see what you mean. It seemed like it was a movie that had to dig itself in the ground. You know, it had to dig itself in. It had to dig itself a, a sort of a, a foothold to hold, you know, to get back into what it was before. Yeah, and, I think, I think though, yeah, yeah, I think you're right in saying that. And critics, as much as objective as they can be, they also, as, as today is evident, follow trends as well. Mm-hmm. And if something is not politically or socially popular, um, you're going to see critics respond, I think, in different ways, as much as they're, I don't want to, you know, denigrate their integrity or anything like that. But those kind of persuasive ideas out there can, she can change your opinion on something um, as opposed to what you would do, what you would give us a review of something then, as opposed to what you would do years later. Yes, definitely so. Well, would you so what did like... Roger Ebert have to say? Okay, well, first of all, Roger Ebert's scoring system is out of four stars. That's how he does his his, his uh, scoring, and he gave Goldeneye three stars. He says, "quote This is the first Bond film that is self-aware. It has lost its innocence." and the simplicity of its worldview, and has some understanding of the absurdity and sadness of its hero. Perhaps our popular conception of maleness has changed so much that James Bond can no longer exist in the old way. In Goldeneye, we get a hybrid, a modern Bond grafted onto the formula. I had a good enough time, I guess, although I never really got involved. I was shaken, but not stirred. End quote. Okay. And Peter Stack from the San Fran Chronicle the film lacks the elan of the Sean Connery era, but is loaded with all the assaultive noise and eye-popping bravura that 90s crowds love in a stunt film. When the action is extreme, Goldeneye is supercharged with spectacular, thundering, brain-numbing fun. 
It finds its most solid footing as an action film, where stunning visual gags outshine anything a mere movie star could ever hope to do. Brosnan is smart enough, handsome enough, stylish enough to be a focal point for the film's awesome action sequences. Goldeneye may be eye-popping, but it needs more sex. Whether or what there is is either too angry or fake-feeling, as 007 toys with a hard-edged feline-type villain played by Famke Janssen, or a pretty Russian computer expert filmed by Swedish newcomer Isabella Skorupko. Bond seems uncharacteristically preoccupied with gender-based propriety. He no longer he's no longer the sexual danger seeker that novelist Ian Fleming dished up. Mostly what the Bond genre has lost is a skillfully crafted sense of character. But given that well-crafted character is largely missing in the world these days, Goldeneye is a shining example of sound and fury signifying, well, fill in the blank. <laughs> I think this is someone who, who, who misses the old Bond from from mm-hmm. that view. This is a long-running series. And, you know, it's really tough to continue to reinvent yourself with the times. Yes. But it's also necessary if you want to attract the attention of your audiences. Because although although Bond is famous for its dedicated fans, I think that Bond could have lost his fans if he didn't adjust and he didn't change. Absolutely. I mean, GoldenEye was the beginning of that, but I guess it would be kind of spoiler alert, you know, a couple whenever the roulette wheel falls upon Casino Royale, I think that's when the real changes start happening. Um, mm-hmm. Because if you look at the, the reception of GoldenEye versus the reception of Casino Royale, I mean, Casino Royale was hailed out of the gate. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I, th- I think everybody wanted it. Um, and but, but but you see, I don't think that could have happened without the Brosnan era getting to the heights that it did. So really? I think so. I think that if I think people wanted a new bond, but Brosnan kept bond alive just enough so that they could do the right retooling at that time. Right. Mm-hmm. I guess so. Yeah. Um, it's but strange. It's, I mean, when we get to that transitory uh, die another day, We'll, we'll yes. probably be in a better position to address that concern or that question. But yes, uh, you know, yeah, okay, we'll see. So for our next segment, uh, we have a friend of mine um, who is a expert on many different things. He's a very knowledgeable guy, and he, you know, he's my roommate. He's my been a close friend for me, of me for a long time. So um, I'm going to bring up an interview uh, that uh, we did we did with him. So one thing I want to bring up on the show is that uh, every now and then uh, we're going to have some guests uh, with us uh, to review the movies. And one of the people that we're going to have a couple times is my uh, friend uh, Jeff Chapman slash roommate. Um, He's somewhat of a military history buff as the case of medals and circa 1900 and upwards military texts in his bedroom indicates. Um, he's also aficionado of a game called hockey, um, mm. who, in fact, we were all part of a little hockey pool. And there's some good, uh, Cold War history with hockey too, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. The 72 Summit Series. Uh-huh. And, I mean, that's just scratching the surface, Jeff. That, that is absolutely just scratching the surface. <laughs> yeah. But we're not here to talk about the Summit Series, are we, Josh? No. No, no, no. We're talking about another series, not mm-hmm. of a summit of any kind. Right. So, um, Jeff, you, you've joined us here to talk about GoldenEye. And I know, you, I know you and Josh have had a little chat before this. Uh, but why don't you start by telling our listeners and ourselves a little bit about your first relationship with Bond, where you first met him, <laughs> met him, you know, hypothetically or whatever? It was uh, it was actually at a martini bar when I was eight. It was really awkward. <laughs> no. Uh, but um, <laughs> um, 
when I was a kid, uh, you know, my dad, obviously, being born in the 50s, uh, he saw the movies when he was a kid and, and a young adult. And so just like a lot of sons, uh, they kind of gravitated towards Bond once their, their dad sort of showed them the movies and told them about them. So I, I got to see Bond at a young age. And I, of course, I loved all the gadgets in the cars. Um, and so that's how I got to know Bond. Um, that's And so ever since then, yeah, I've been really into it. I think that's probably a common story with a lot of uh, sons and fathers with sort of bonding over Bond. Yeah, I think, I think <laughs> you're right. I think you're right. <laughs> What about uh, the film that you remember first, or either who was the first Bond for you, or who do you recall as the fondest, or whatever? I'm pretty sure the first one would have been Connery. I, I don't remember which one I saw first, but I just knew that um, it would have probably it probably would have been the beginning because my dad always said like you know watch from the beginning, and so I'm sure you know I would have watched them on beta or something. Obviously, I didn't see that. I didn't yeah. see them in the theater, uh, but uh, it would have been the early ones. Um, that I, I would have really gravitated towards. Um, CBS Fox video cassettes. Yeah, you know, um, and uh, that's that's where I would have seen the you know the early ones like uh, Doctor No that kind of stuff. Uh, or the ones that I really like. I really like sort of the earlier ones that deal more with sort of the the Russian intrigue. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, this is a great opportunity then for you and Josh to segue into that part of our chat, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So beyond the the collection of old texts and medals uh, that that you have, um, when you're not help, you know, um, when, when you're not helping people with your tech problems uh, during the uh, you know during the day, um, by night you are a volunteer at the Canadian War Museum. Isn't that right? That's correct. Yeah, I've been volunteering at the Canadian War Museum for about four years. So um, since actually the centennial of the First World War. Uh, I've been a volunteer with the with the Friends of the Canadian War Museum, which is sort of uh, affiliated with the Canadian War Museum. And I've volunteered. I've done. Um, I've helped people. Uh, I've done sort of book drives, and I've also done research for specific uh, topics put in by uh, people that just sort of want to know more about a specific topic that a relative may have uh, been involved in. So it's it's quite rewarding, and it's it's a passion of mine. So I thought, why not volunteer? You know, I can uh, it it uh, keeps me out of trouble, and it's uh, quite rewarding. Yeah, it's, it sounds really neat. And I'm guessing today, on the the eve of Remembrance Sunday, it'll be quite a busy and uh, well, quite an involved place right now in the city, won't it? Yeah, it, it, and I'm I'm quite lucky that I'm actually able to go to the uh, the cenotaph. Um, he goes every year. I try to yeah. at least, and so this one I'm, I'm because it's the the centennial of the the armistice. I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the the cenotaph in downtown Ottawa, and I'm I'm, I'm very pleased that I'm gonna be able to make it this year. That said, um, so so you know we we know your historic your history buff. We know you're into military history in particular. With self-proclaimed, all your, self-proclaimed, <laughs> whatever. We're all self-proclaimed in the end, or <laughs> aren't, aren't, aren't we all? Yes, we are. <laughs> And then, of course, uh, you know he, he has his background with the Canadian War Museum. Um, Jeff has has the opportunity to look at a lot of stuff in regard to uh, military history, but also the history of the intelligence services of the world, such as you know like CSIS and going into like um, even farther down 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 in history, such as the um, British intelligence or uh, the Soviet the KGB. Um, also, you know the uh, special operation executive during World War Two. Yep. Um, and also figures such as Stevenson or Intrepid, as he was known, who was a Canadian spy, um, very interesting figure. So Jeff has a pretty good handle on, you know, what the Cold War is all about and uh, how, you know, it can be how it's perceived um, in popular culture as well. And so 
basically uh, the first movie or series is Goldeneye. And unlike the majority of Bond films, uh, this takes place that which take place during the Cold War. This takes place immediately afterwards. And watching the movie again, um, you know, did, did anything catch your eye in terms of the portrayal of the post Cold War world? Uh, it absolutely did, and this is why you know watching it again, uh, it's Goldeneye is quite an important Bond film because there's a lot of different things, in my opinion, where. Uh, you know, it's the first one after the fall of the Iron Curtain, and they do sh- they do a good job of showing the difference. Uh, it's also interesting because it also shows Russia uh, elements of the old dogs and the, and the young pups of Russia because one was the USSR and now is the new Russia, and they're trying to portray, you know, Russia is capitalist, not communist, but we all know behind what, what was the Iron Curtain, they're still running it like a communist country. So Goldeneye was a, is an interesting film showing sort of what Russia is now. But it's still showing that they're still the same enemies. They just have, you know, governments. There was a quote in the movie, and it was, uh, governments change, but uh, lies stay the same. And so that really sums up, uh, you know, the uh, what is the the great game. Which still is ongoing with our, with uh, yeah, so, Mr. So, Putin yeah, there. Absolutely. It, it definitely is. But I, I'm curious just to see or to hear what you thought about these brush strokes. Did you find them heavy-handed in any way, or did you just think that because it was the first film after the dissolution of the Soviet Empire that this or the Soviet Union that this was just it had to be this way? Like, because some some to me watching the film, some of these some of these plays are a little heavy-handed, and some of the yeah, lines, you know. It, but, yes, that's true. I agree. It's almost some of it was almost like propaganda. There was and there were some fun things in there. Um, for example, one thing I really liked and I made a note of it is. There's that classic, you know, the Bond sort of pose with the pistol. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed that in the the first big shootout in Goldeneye when he's running away uh, trying to catch the plane uh, is that he does that pose but with an AK-47, which I think is a nice sort of spin on his, you know, Walter PPK, but it's mm-hmm. like with the Russian gun, which I thought was kind of neat. Yeah. I, uh, I like that. Um, and uh, sorry, go ahead. No, that's it. That's all I was going to say. I just, I, I hadn't actually picked that one up. Obviously, I knew he had the rifle, but I hadn't thought about it yeah. in those historical terms. I just, yeah. I just thought, I just, I just thought that I thought it was neat. I just knew that gun as a KF7 Soviet. Yeah, in, in, in Goldeneye the video game. Exactly. I, I, I was wondering how long we would get into this before Goldeneye right. the video game came up into into this. Well, I, as, Dude, I, as I was inevitable. watching, oh, as I was watching, I kept saying, "Oh yeah, this level." I mean, <laughs> this. Yeah. So. Yeah, the film. Yeah. The, I mean, the game's pretty well mapped, isn't it? It is. It, yeah. it is. Yeah, it is. Um, oh, I sorry. I in regards to the point, I was. I just wanted to sort of. I was mentioning about sort of the, the new and the old Russia. One thing that was interesting is that uh, in Val- in Valentine, when he met uh, Valentin, and he was at that bar, you could see this. I think they're trying to show how Russia is trying to. It's not the old Russia. This is the new Russia. The in the show, you know, many a very young, and and freckled mini driver singing country music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that to me was trying to show how Russia is like, oh, we're not the bad guys. We're trying to emulate America now. I thought that was a, a nice little. It's like, who's scene. strangling the cat? Bond says when Morse, like, who's yeah. strangling Tammy Wynette? <laughs> it, it's like just a vulgar kind of like parody yeah. of American culture that they're trying to represent, right? So you think I mean, it was Boris, a bit of a dig? Yeah. Well, I think it was a bit of a dig. And yeah. like Boris Greshenko, he is, I guess you could also say he's kind of a anachronistic figure because he's kind of showing the corruption of American culture 
to the very straight-laced kind of Soviet culture from before, right? Well, also he's wearing like a Hawaiian shirt. He doesn't really have much of a Russian <laughs> accent. Like, you know, he's a hacker. He is, he's very Western. Yeah. yeah, I was going to ask you about that character. Um, and so, I, I mean, all three of us together here Yes, now. he kind of looks like me. I understand. I, I agree with that. <laughs> well, no, I wasn't going to go down that road. Um, I was a lot just... of people in school thought, it, thought I looked like Boris from uh, GoldenEye. So I... well, it, it could be worse. It could be worse, yeah. Hey, Alan Cummings had a bad-looking guy, you know? Uh, you could look like Jaws. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Jaws, we'll, Taylor. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that when we look at The Spy Who Loved Me, maybe. Possibly. Or Moonraker. It depends <laughs> on, the, on, on the order of the roulette wheel. Yeah, indeed. All right, so uh, what else did you guys talk about when you were able to view this together? Well... One of the big twists uh, is that Trevelyan is still alive, 006, and it turns out that he's a Leanne's Cossack traitor, and while the film outlines these people um, for us in terms of like who they were in a brief kind of way for the sake of the narrative, is there any veracity to the story that they were talking about in regard to the Leanne's Cossacks and and, uh, how their history determined, you know, connected to Russia as a whole? And to England as as a whole, you know that whole revenge scheme. Like, is there is there is, is is that a very truthful plot element? I guess I'm just what I'm trying to say. I would say yes. The thing with the Cossacks, and it's a quite a it's a it's a pretty bad story. It almost kind of reminded me a bit of uh, even though this is not a Bond movie, but Hunt for Red October and explaining you know Ramius and how he was, um, uh, you know, he was kind of. He was from uh, Lithuania. Now Ramius is the character that Sean Connery played. Sean Connery, yeah, exactly. Um, but so it's interesting with the Cossacks because um, they were they were sort of like the secret police of the Russian of Russia for hundreds of years, and um, after the Russian Revolution they were persona non grata and they basically purged them. And even even after um, like World War Two, um, so so that's why they that's why they they were forced to pretty much work with the Nazis in World War II. That's exactly. Because they're already hated by the, by, by, by the Russians exactly. already. And so when a lot of them, and I actually have a personal friend who mentioned like his grandfather was Ukrainian, and even though he wasn't a Cossack, it's the same story where he actually sided with the Germans because he hated the Russians so much because of what, what Stalin was doing to Ukraine at the time in the 30s. Uh, so he actually sided with the Germans, and then when he the war was over and he had to go back, he he fled and he went to Germany, and then he came to Canada and changed his name, which is very similar to again what what the Cossacks had to do because if they went back to Russia, they would they were all just like uh, killed. Just they found out who they were and who who was a uh, a collaborator with the with the Germans and killed them all. So well, okay. To connect to that, sure. I, I feel as though watching the film, particularly that scene where Alex sort of drops those lines, you know, about his history and and whatnot, um, like I felt that was not really explained much. I, I felt that perhaps that was a line thrown in or written in to I, cover up yeah. a few historical inaccuracies I, in a story or or something. Yeah, I. It's true. I felt that. It, what you're right. I I I definitely agree with that. I thought it was sort of just put there for like. Um, to, to give him motivation? Yeah, motivation, but it, it did feel a bit, like, rushed and sort of forced. I agree with you on that. Well, I mean, here's a question then. How many of these Cossacks um, would, in any realistic terms, be able to align themselves with uh, conglomerates or uh, military you know, cells or whatever that, that would be able to hoist the sort of finance necessary to do any terrorism work, regardless of, you know, this type of world domination stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah. To, like, how, like, are, is there any surviving 
Cossacks, would they have been able to have the influence to become yeah, uh, yeah. Yanis, basically? I honestly, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'm not 100% sure, but I mean, there, there could be like individual, um, individuals, uh, you know, stories, but I don't think so. Hmm. Uh, I think the Cossacks kind of, they went the way of the dodo pretty quick. Hmm. Um, like even as philosophical figures, their value isn't particularly high, is it? After No. <clears throat> no, I mean, they, they're basically, their stock continued to drop after about the 18th century. They were kind of like the secret police. It's almost similar to like what the, the Gurkhas were to the British Army. Is They just they were their secret weapon. They were mm -hmm. super tough, loyal soldiers that would go in and just kill. Yeah. Col colonized, indoctrinated, and then used as basically, as, as tools for, yeah. to, you know, to... Um, spread influence and, and, and fear. But it's interesting because when you look at the sort of, if you look at a, a painting of, of, of strength in Russia, it's a lot of the time it's what is considered a Cossack. And they're not even Russian. They're usually like ethnic Ukrainian or, or, or Hungarian. Or, sorry, it's mostly Ukrainian, but anyways. <laughs> you were mentioning, Scott, um, earlier about how, like, you know, the heavy-handedness of some of the of, of some of the imagery in terms of the post-Cold War and stuff. I mean, we can't get any more heavy-handed than the the statue graveyard that, scene yeah. where Alec, where we where we first we get a the Alec reveal and b the background of of the Leanne's Cossack story and and his motivations in that one scene, and then on top of that, you have the opening credit sequence, yeah. which is. Fun fact, this is actually the first Bond film to not have a, a title sequence designed by Maurice Binder hmm. because he had passed away by that point. So the new guy, uh, can't recall his name at the present moment, uh, he, he designed that whole music video sequence. And it's a very, of all the Bond, uh, the, the, the modern Bond film credits, I think it's still one of the, uh, one of the modern Bond op opening scenes. I think it's one of the most pr 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 provocative ones. One of my, I think visually it's very arresting. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I quite like it. I like the, the the sickle and the hammer and breaking apart the statue stones and things. Yeah. I think that it's it's certainly symbolic and it's definitely suggestive. And I, I'm not and I'm not criticizing the film for maybe not going to the 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 accurate lengths that you know a, a more heightened fan would want. I, I'm just I'm just simply wondering if, given the fact that it's production ninety four ninety five, if if right. they're only playing with these ideas to suggest that they could go there, but at the end of the day, it's a Bond film. Let's just keep it superficial. Yeah, yeah, that's. A, I would agree with that. I agree. I agree with that as well. One thing I want to ask you, Jeff: Do you think there's a actually something like a golden eye still up floating in space somewhere for some <laughs> super villain to find? <laughs> well, you know what? Um, never say never. Yeah. Again. Again. Uh, yeah. There is a lot of junk up there. There is. <laughs> like, never say never again. I'm sure there's also, like, a Jimmy Buffett record up there somewhere, too. Oh, okay. Jimmy Buffett's up there, guaranteed. That's, that's in the space junk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, you uh, got, I know, I know you got to head off to work, uh, Jeff. Have you got anything else that you guys uh, desperately need to chat about you want to share before you do that? Well, I guess there was a couple of things um, we were saying. Like, I was kind of saying, I was showing sort of the old Russia and the new Russia. And I was sort of saying that it it did show like they did they did an okay job of showing the new Russia and I know obviously with the um, the, the opening scene sort of the um, the flashback they made it they made sure that they showed CCP mm -hmm. which uh, CCP meaning like it was Russia and then obviously they said nine years later and I, I, it was good because you know it still showed that they were it was it had to do with 
you know, before uh, the fall of the Iron Curtain. And so I, I liked how they, they bridged it to show it's still Russia, but we're still fighting. And the the whole – I was also going to mention, like, the old dogs and the young pups between Russia, like Soviet Union and Russia. So I think the, the movie did a good job of that. Um, and that's why I was saying it's an important film because it is it does has to it does have to bridge the gap between um, you know the Cold War and post um, uh, post Iron Curtain. Yeah, um, and I suppose you know in a, in a, in a similar vein, it also has to bridge the gap between two bonds. You know, you've got a different exactly. actor performing now as well. Yeah. yeah, and that's the that's the other thing is that it's probably I was thinking it would be hard for people. One, people have to get behind a new bond and get behind a new bond. In a post Cold War, like what's going to happen, right? So it's kind of like, uh, yeah, who's the bad guys in this now, right? Yeah. So it, it was interesting. Like and that's why I was saying it's it's a very important bond on, on a few levels. I guess yeah, that, yeah, that's that's a good observation because the the villains that we have later in the series are not quite as although Trevelyan has got some ridiculous supervillain features, right. the, he he is sort of a complex figure. Not to say sure. that none of them before were, but. You know, we we now you think about Spectre and you think about um, <clears throat> oh sorry, what was it? Uh, Qu- Quantum, right? The organization oh, of Quantum, yeah. and just how just how convoluted that is, and how politically um, gray and you know challenging it is. I guess that uh, Trevelyan sort of represents the forecoming of that. Yeah, but like basically, Cold War uh, intrigue is gone, and now it's just like it's post Cold War, where in the Craig era you have basically. Um, terrorist organizations through the, the new evil, right? That's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. One thing I did want to mention uh, is that in the 60s and 70s, early 70s with MI6, it was a it was a really tough time for the uh, for the intelligence agency because they had, uh, you know, they had obviously moles right up until uh, there was there were there was a, a spy who was actually going to be the director of intelligence, and then they obviously added him. So the the 70s was a very hard time uh, for MI6 to sort of get its uh, its credibility back up. So it's interesting that they have Trevelyan, who is a valued like double O agent, and then he he turns on them. So that's another example of sort of like how MI6 is still, uh, you know, has has uh, has moles and, and um, traitors. And, when, and, that, and that connects with Judy Dench's whole uh, yeah. opening gambit, doesn't it? It does. That's right. The evil queen of numbers. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool. That, that's great insight. And uh, we're looking forward to getting you back to do more because I know that uh, in an ideal world, you'd be able to spend a full time with us, but you, uh, you're you off to work, aren't you? Yeah. I, he, yes. He, he's almost out the door, but we got some uh, some final, more important questions here for him. <laughs> um, first of all, who is your favorite Bond? Um, because, you know... Uh, I appreciate the uh, golden age of film. I, I, I like uh, I like Connery and I like Brosnan. Those are, so I I guess Connery. I would say Connery. It's a good answer. I agree with it. Scott, I'm sure has different response to that. Hey, hey, listen. I said, didn't I last time when we when we launched this show? I said that I'm coming to this series now, completely well as objectively as I possibly can. I'm rewatching these films with a new eye. I think our conversation today is going to reveal that. Uh, maybe okay. not for the listeners who know nothing about how I really feel, but uh, certainly to you, Josh. <laughs> we've we've talked about no, no. We've talked about this before, but I think that uh, hey, I, I'm open, man. I'm you know I'm not quite as pigeoned in as you think I am. 
I'm not saying you're pigeoned in. I'm just uh, I'm just going from what I what 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 I know from nostalgia. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Nostalgia is a Greek word that means old wounds. So you know <laughs> maybe we should just sew up these old wounds and and take and get new ones. I don't know yeah. if the mic picked this up, but I could definitely hear Josh backpedaling. I don't know if the mic. <laughs> yeah, I hear the tick 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 tick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that wheel's a bit oil. I mean, it needs some oiling for sure. Um, Okay, so moving forward, um, okay. who is your favorite Bond? And I want to stress this: Bond woman, right. not girl, because we're we're not going to deal with we're not going to use that old term Bond girl anymore because right. it, yeah. just, it just it just doesn't it just doesn't work. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah. So who so who is your favorite Bond w woman? I know you haven't seen all these movies recently, you know, yeah. in a long time and stuff. But if you can remember the ones that stick out to you, is there anyone in particular that you found an interesting character? Well, you know what, uh, Diana Rigg is always. Uh, I think she's great. Um, also, no one can wear leather like her. Um, <laughs> you know, but no, I, I liked her. Um, even though, like, on Her Majesty's Secret Service wasn't, uh, you know, my, my favorite, I do appreciate her as what she was. Um, I also like Jane Seymour and Claudine Auger. I like, I like all those. Uh, I think they did a good job, and uh, obviously, um, they're easy on the eyes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're also good characters too. Well, that's yes. That's yeah, what I'm saying. Well, the, the two, two of them are anyway. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the Bond women that stick out are, are the ones who are the good character, who are the good written characters. You Correct. know what I mean? Yep. Um. So, and how about your favorite Bond villain? I mean, there's a big rogues gallery to choose from. Yeah, there, there is. There is. Um, I like Goldfinger. I think classic. Yeah, I think he. Yeah, I think he's a great. I think he's a great villain. Or don't you mean the Premier of Ontario? Huh. Sorry, a little right. Canadian content there for our viewers. Yeah. Our premier of Ontario, the province of Ontario in Canada, we elected kind of like a Trump of our own. And yeah, yeah. you did you did really well there, by the way. Yeah, I didn't elect him. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh. But uh, <laughs> uh, he kind of, yeah he kind of looks like Oric Goldfinger, Gert, like the German actor Gert Frobe. That's what he looks like. Yay, he's a looker. Yeah, for sure. Finally, uh, how about your favorite gadget? So I got a couple because there's obviously they're they're so iconic. Um, I love the cast rocket. I think that's fantastic because who doesn't want to you know blow up the hospital when you're leaving in that stupid wheelchair that you have to go in? <laughs> and you're, man, because I, I know that I know that a patient came up with that one. Um, also, the car rocket because again, I have a lot of road rage that would be very handy. Um, Specifically, I think you pointed out was the the, the car rockets in the Aston Martin yes. in uh, the Living Daylights. Yes, yeah, that was fantastic. Um, also, I just this one I feel is quite you know it's quite a useful tool is the watch saw because I don't know how many times I've been you know stuck in a situation and I needed a knife and I didn't have one and I could you know I can tell the time and cut ropes at the same time. Who doesn't want that? That's a very good point. I like that. I hadn't thought of that one. Um, I mean, we, 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 I guess we'll think about this stuff later, Josh, won't we? But that's that's a really good one now that I come to think of it. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. super. It's, <laughs> it is. I, I saw it. I was like, yeah, okay, there's a lot of killing ones. I'm like, I don't know. That that saw that uh, watch saw is just great. It also has a magnet in there, too, if I, yeah. if, if I recall. Oh, yeah. It does, yeah. 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 Good, good old live and let die. Um, nostalgia coming back there again. Um, this be remain objective. <laughs> You've got to beat so, that nostalgia beast when it comes crawling, though, hey? Yeah, you got to beat it. You just got to beat it down and make it. Just make it like you know. Just be quiet in the corner and and not 
say anything, you know, just to, to I know it's to... difficult, man. I know it's difficult. But, you know, if, if we are going to uh, if we're going to do anything beyond fanboying with this series, we've got to put that beast to sleep. It's true. But once you do that, then uh, I, I'd say like, um, you know, as a as I've listened to a bunch of your podcasts, actually, it's like, yeah, it's something if you get through nostalgia and you just uh, you can keep going and that's it's good. If you it can is. Do that. It is good. It is. It's it's that it's 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 like you know how like your your car um, runs out of fuel, but there's still fumes in there that keep it going. That's what nostalgia is. Hmm. So uh, it's not it, it's not old wounds then. <laughs> well, it's, it's old wounds in terms of what the, what the, what, the, what it actually what the word actually means. But and I kind of what, what I guess what the Greeks were going for when they described it. Um, one thing I wanted to mention is that I did notice and I, I appreciated it is that they don't usually mention bonds like military service and depending on which bond era we're talking about obviously mm-hmm. with craig he's uh he's sas which I, i'm not a fan of but that's fine <laughs> and, then, and then you have the traditional <laughs> but bond, then there's traditional which is... bond who was a co- commander in the navy and so and i did notice uh he did mention it at least once in goldeneye that he was a commander in the navy mm-hmm. and i love that that was great <laughs> it is good yeah it is i mean in the in the early films, and really, to be fair, in the later ones too, I don't think that title does, you know, anybody any service. I mean, Roger Moore wears a double-breasted blue blazer occasionally and puts on a hat. Yes. Connery yes. gets yes. Connery with with his fake death and the "You Only Live Twice." I think he he's dressed up in his commander's uniform, but yeah. it really doesn't extend much beyond these sort of these sort of dropping moments. Well, you got Roger on the um, jet ski in the spy who spy, oh, yeah. in the spy who loved a, me. He's got his dress uniform on there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a he sh- first ever jet ski. On television. Yeah, I was going to say, film, that's yeah. a really jet ski. Yeah. yeah. It was a Q invention, of course. Man. Q was always well, ahead of, of game yes. all the he, time. He is. He is. He's ahead of the Q. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, you could go down. That's great, though. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, thanks thanks for showing up and being part of this first episode. We'll definitely get you back for a couple of full features later on the series. No problem. It was a, it was a easy. Uh, it was easy to get to the place, uh, as it is also my apartment. Uh, so yeah, no, I definitely, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, uh, he has a recording studio in his apartment, and my secretary that I have here yeah. took uh, took his took his hat and his coat and yeah, well, sat no, him down. I, fl- I flew the I threw the hat and it caught on the the, the coat rack. So it was good. Ah, very good. Do you guys very even good. have a coat rack in your? No, apartment? no. We have right. a we, 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 we have, we have we, a closet. And right now you're you're uh, yeah we have a closet. Yeah, we, we don't have a coat rack as of yet. No. Well, something you know, something to work on. Yeah, it, it possibly is. goals. Goals. Right. Thanks again, Jeff. Take it easy, buddy. Take care. All See right. Well, that's uh, some starting points over on Goldeneye. Some info, just light info on the review information, uh, reception, a little bit on the production history, how the film came about, how it lost its main actor only to find its its other actor and. And uh, I think we're well positioned now to move into the bulk of our episode, which is, of course, the conversation on the plot itself. Conversation on the plot. Conversation on the plot. You need to make up a jingle for that. I will not. (laughs) I will not. Uh, Or I'll just use what you just did. How's that? Okay. So, But I personally think, and and I'm speaking subjectively, that a lot of the, I think it's deep down, Roger Ebert, Peter Stack, etc. I think they just hated Eric Serra's soundtrack. I'm just putting uh, that out there. I'm yeah. just putting that. I'm just putting that out there. Well, Subli- sub- subliminally, it makes you hate the movie. <laughs> there are some 
terrible choices musically. And you don't have to be a really competent music student or musician to to spot them. There are some strikingly bad musical choices in this film, even for the time, you know, even just, for the time. Let's just segue right to the start of it. I mean, yeah. okay, we got we got the opening gun barrel sequence. Okay. So it looks the the iris look the gun barrel looks really sleek and shiny and Pierce Brosnan walks across the uh, you know walks across through through the through, through the um, gun barrel and uh, it looks pretty cool but it has that weird like I don't know what it is it's like pipes or something it sounds like they're in a submarine the entire freaking movie mm-hmm. <laughs> you know you know what I mean well when we when we did our musical retrospective I remember discussing this score because we had. <laughs> yeah and one of the things that we looked into and I, we did look into it was that sound that sort of that sort of like someone cracking a sledgehammer against the inside hull of a submarine exactly what you say and apparently that was meant to be emblematic or suggestive of this sort of cold war um soviet metallic sort of darkness that he was up against eric Seurat, he's quite an artist i'll give him that <laughs> he's he's quite something He's quite something. Interesting about him is that, like, exclusively, I mean, he's a French composer, and he works mostly actually with Luc Besson. Uh, He scored The Professional, or Leon, whatever you call it. Um, Depends what country, I guess, um, you're in. And then he also scored The Fifth Element, another Luc Besson film. And his type of music worked for those movies. But I just don't think they worked for a James Bond film. And he says that he wanted to make a modern film uh, score for a Bond film as opposed to a, I guess, classical style like John Barry, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what he wanted to do. He wanted something outside of that. So GoldenEye is, a, is a, it's about taking James Bond as a whole and redesigning him or making him fit in the modern world. And I guess Eric Serap did that approach with his score. Mm-hmm. Well, that said, yeah, okay. I do think, and, and we'll, we'll point it out in detail, I do think that his GoldenEye Overture is a really good action piece um, that you hear like once or twice throughout the film. And I like Natalia's theme, but everything else like besides that is not great. <laughs> the score is not completely devoid of, of good tracks and nice ideas. I just think that it's, uh, it really hits the big scenes poorly. Yes. And I, and I jarringly, and jarringly, yeah. I mean, you don't, you probably wouldn't even, we wouldn't be having this conversation if it was a video game, but it's not. It's a film, and in the moments where we're meant to be uh, feeling some pathos or or some, you know, real suspense, we're totally taken out of it. And we, we'll, we'll t- let's, you know, we'll talk about that as we go through the steps here and the beats of the plot. But um, yeah, so let's just start then here discussing yeah. this, uh, starting from from this from this beginning, this opening scene, as you say. The, the music, okay, we, we've touched on that, but how, how do you like this? Do, do, I mean, do you like this, this introductory pre-title sequence? I think it's fantastic. Minus the score, I think it's fantastic. Um, that scene where you, just like that, the, 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 how Martin Campbell filmed the, the gate opening and Bond, and we don't see his face yet, but Bond running across the, the, the Archangel Dam, and then that fantastic uh, bungee jump, with an actual stuntman, not a CGI green screen, but an actual stuntman being paid, risking his life to do that jump all the way down. And then how 
effortlessly, he fires the piton and it attaches in and reels them in. And then uh, in my mind too, because of the video game, I'm like, okay, now we're in the vents and now we're going to hop right into the bathroom stall. Right? Yeah. I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking through my notes here. Wayne Michaels is the stunt man who, uh, who did that work for Brosnan. Yeah. That, that, like that to me, I mean, once we get to the spy who loved me, I still, as a child, that jump off the, um, that mountain in, in, in Canada that they filmed for the opening of the spy who loved me, uh, it was supposed to be the Alps in the movie, but it was done in Canada. Um, that like jump from the from the from the mountain with the parachute and all that, like that that what that to me was them bringing Bond back to the audience right then and there, right? That's what they wanted to do, and they succeeded greatly. And then, so following that, we have Bond um, manages to get into the facility that he's breaking into. Uh, at which point, after a couple of uh, you know knocking a couple of Soviet guards out. And, and we know that this is set during the Soviet Union, uh, not during the modern time. Uh, he encounters Trevelyan in, uh, outside of the, in, I guess, the storage room of, of the kitchen. And this is, of course, Alec Trevelyan, uh, played by Sean Bean, uh, double agent 006. So we, we now learn that there's a, a 006. And basically the whole, the whole, the whole sequence uh, shows how 006 uh, is supposedly... Um, shot by the Soviet villain Orimov and that the whole facility is destroyed after Bond makes his mistake. And it's interesting how it's bookended because you know how I was talking about how beautiful that opening jump was at the beginning of the sequence. And then we have this over this overreaching green screen, terrible green screen sequence of Bond jumping the motorcycle off the edge and then catching the plane in midair. Yes. And I think that just to me was just <laughs> a little too much. It was. It was a little too much. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I just got to pull you back a little bit here. I've got, I got problems with this opening sequence. And as a younger viewer, I loved it. You know, I totally loved it because the bungee jump, okay. as you say, is awesome. And, but I've got some act like, and again, I'm not going to try to play critic to this because, you know, what I'm saying isn't necessarily going to affect scoring of this at the end. I, I'm just, no. I think we've got to talk about this, you know, like, um, well, first of all, Wayne Michaels, the stuntman, he he said that uh, in an interview he was saying how afraid he was of Martin Campbell because Martin Campbell, I think, was a bit manic on the set, and uh, <laughs> and apparently Michaels doing that jump was afraid of being yelled at for not pulling the gun out fast enough on the bungee jump because <laughs> you know he he reckoned he only had one of these good jumps in him, right? But Martin Campbell actually, from some of the production notes that I've been reading. Seems like a pretty tough director. He gets good results, but not like while while they were complimentary of him, everyone said that you got to be on your toes around him. Like, yeah, he has very extremely few, demanding. He has very few films. If you think about it, he has yeah, Goldeneye, yeah. Casino Royale. Mm -hmm. uh, there was some movie about climbing a mountain. I forget the name of it. And, and then, of course, he had his big fall, which was when he directed the Green Lantern, which was a huge bomb. Yeah, but he he got he got back on good form this year with the Foreigner. That was a great film. Yeah, yeah. That Foreigner was really good. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, starring Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. Um, anyway, just just getting back to it. Something I saw. Uh, something that I saw after the fact. Uh, online there, made me made me wonder. And and then I, I kind of thought about it. I'm like, absolutely right. I made a note when I was watching the film about the geographic space of this. Like, I don't know if it was storyboarded. I, I mean, obviously it was storyboarded, but I don't know if it was storyboarded without a bit of thought to this particular aspect. But then I was seeing something online that, I mean, explained it in very different terms, better terms than I could. But, you know, when 
Bond and okay, so Bond accesses accesses the um the plant or what is it again? Sorry, the uh... the the chemical plant That's because right. they're yeah, putting yeah, the, yeah, they're yeah. putting the six minute timers mm -hmm, mm -hmm. On, on on the tanks or whatever. Him yeah. and Trevelyan. So he accesses that that plant through a bungee jump. So he's on a bridge. He's jumping down, right? And the then dam, yep. and then he goes into like that, and he goes down from the roof into the toilets, right? Yes. And then he meets up with Alec, and then they go down again because don't they like cut it open the floor or something right and they go That's down right. and then they go down and then they go down some steps where they get to meet oromov and mm -hmm. all that stuff takes place with the you know the setting the uh, the devices and and the and the bombs and whatnot and then when bond exits that level he's at the top of a fucking mountain like i don't understand how how that space is meant to come across to us as an audience like it, it doesn't really it doesn't connect with me as a viewer like you know that's that's really true yeah it's almost like so is the dam higher than the mountain, and yeah, that's just like, like, and that's just like a, a lower part of the mountain where like the uh, where, where the runway ju juts out onto the precipice or whatever. Well, this, that's a good that's a good point. But it wasn't like it was an observation I made, but I'm really glad that I did a little bit of digging online because I found uh, I, f I found this this sort of review that was was doing it in much better you know better strokes that I'm offering right now but basically I did write down that I have problems with the geography of the scene because I don't quite understand them like the, the direction that everything's moving in and it's okay it didn't really take me out of the fun because it is fun right it is fun to watch but then later I made the exact same note when he's in the tank because you know he's on the same level with all these police cars going through St. Petersburg and then he's above the train like I, I don't quite see how some of the, the, the spacing or, or the direction, you know, the, the compass yeah, the, work in this film. The but, spatial, yeah, the, the, the spatial accuracy. Now, it, you know, if it weren't for the fact that this is a director that gave me Casino Royale, which we'll talk about when we get to it, and, you know, I, I'm and the, the Zorro films, which are phenomenal, great action Oh, that's films. right. He, that's right. He did the Zorro ones, too. I forgot about yeah, that. I, I might be, yeah, I don't know, like, I might be less, I, I might care less about it, but this guy's got serious chops as a director. And I'm just, I feel like maybe the storyboards, maybe they weren't rushed, but did, did this ever become, did this ever come into things? Because to a, to a more observant viewer, Josh, I can see them kind of having problems with this. No? Well, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you went to CinemaSins and look up GoldenEye, you know, all, everything wrong with GoldenEye, and they probably mentioned that. That, maybe that's, maybe that's what it was I saw. What is, what's cinema? What is that? It's called Cinema Sins, yeah. uh, and, 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 and then the, and the title would be like Everything Wrong with Goldeneye. Like I watched one earlier this week with uh, – actually this morning with uh, about Everything Wrong with Casino Ro Royale. Okay, and right. it was actually really weak nitpicks, uh, that, that, which testifies to the strength of the movie obviously. I certainly hope I'm not – I mean I'm not trying to nitpick this thing apart, but I, I'll, no, check, I'll check no. that out, the Cinema Sins stuff. Um, I hadn't and keep that, in mind but... that guy does it for fun too. So Okay. Right. Well, okay. Fair so enough. Yes. All just... movies have continuity errors and have planning issues that, that where you notice these kind of things. But you make a really good point, though. Like, what, what side of the mountain are we talking about here? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And how high is this mountain? How high is this mountain? But you know, <laughs> e even so, even so, it didn't it didn't completely take me out of it or anything. I was just kind of like, okay, like I'm looking at him a little bit different now, you know. But yeah, yeah. It, it's it's a good scene. It's a good scene. I uh, I thought that airplane thing was ridiculous, and I also thought it's absolutely ridiculous that if these are full drums of chemical, 
right? When Bond is escaping this this opening scene, and he shoots the he shoots the the, the, the iron gate, you know, the lock cracks off, and all of these drums just keep come, come down, you know, falling on everybody in this crazy. Like, wouldn't everybody be killed if these things are dropping from thirty feet above them onto them? Like, how does Trevelyan? Yes. How, how, how did how does anybody come out of that without injury? I I don't know, but I, guess, I was also wondering why, for example. When uh, Orimov uh, executes Trevelyan, would Bond have not noticed, you know, the blood splatter from being from the headshot? You know what I mean? Uh, mm. I don't like I found that I found that the headshot was way too clean. But I guess that's what Trevelyan and Orimov were trying to do. Right. And I guess Bond could have been caught up in the moment. Um, yes, I suppose so. I suppose so. Yeah. Anyway, so then, yeah, he, he, he does this green screen drop and he gets into the plane, which is phenomenally stupid. <laughs> Uh, even, As I said, even if it's good entertainment, it, it's phenomenally stupid. But 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 it's cool though because it leads us into uh, into Tina Turner's uh, Bono yeah. and the Edge written GoldenEye theme song. So it does, and the yeah. the title sequence, which we speak about with with Jeff. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is this is a good song, and this is a good sequence. I, I really like this part of the film. I think the the music works well. Tina's voice is, is great. I love the visuals, you know, of the uh, the, the the figures destroying the, the statues and the sickle and the hammers and this, this, all of this symbolism of the Soviet um, Union, uh, the dissolution of it and all of that. I, I really like that stuff. I liked how Bond, we never actually saw Bond himself. It was just kind of like the silhouette of Bond. But then you see all the women. They're actually, it was like you know how like the old Bond films that the women were like these silhouettes. Bond was the silhouette kind of in, in this one. And the women, you see like their actual face, like it was their flesh. You could see mm-hmm. actual like their faces and, and everything. And this really scary imagery of like, uh, just like almost like the women were posing like the statues over the ones that were, of the, I guess, of the old British and Soviet empires that were brought down right after the Cold War. So mm-hmm. I, I think there's a bit of a strong feminist message in there too, a little bit. Okay, um, <laughs> there might be a nod to that. I don't know how strong the feminism yeah, is. Yeah, a, a, a nod is fair. I, I, nod I, is fair. I feel as though, yeah, okay, so you've got a character like Xenia on the top who was, you know, is, is going to come into our discussion now, but I, I don't know how feminist she actually is. You know, yeah, she gets pleasure out of this masochistic pleasure out of killing people and she's powerful and sexy and all of that, but I don't really know at the end of the day, how feminist she is because she has that terrible scene and it really stood out to me where, you know, she intercepts Bond and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but she intercepts Bond in the spa, in the the pool. You know, she clearly is going to deliver him anyway to this guy, right? To to Trevelyan. But the fact fact that she doesn't get to sleep with him really gets her down it really frustrates her and she's just like 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 a a shrunken flower in the car there she's all angry and kind of sullen because she didn't just get beat by bond but she also didn't get his magic penis you know like (laughs) yeah yeah speaking of uh feminism but no you make a great great point there um so let's go back to before we get to on top so we we, so so we finished those those great end credits and now we have uh Opening shot, the fast-moving highway of southern France in the mountains, uh, I guess towards Nice, like in that particular area. Mm-hmm. Bonds in his Aston Martin, old school, and uh, with his psychological evaluator. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> ridiculous, but whatever. 
who is dressed like Dana Scully in like in the first couple of seasons <laughs> of the X-Files. She is, yeah. Well, it's about the same time, you know, it is about the same yeah. time. But listen, if 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 you ever wanted an example uh, of of how the music has ruins the scene. This is it. Oh. This this is one of the this is one of the the premier spots to watch Eric Serra's score because you got this pretty decent chase. You know, it's all right. It's pretty cool. And then you got this music, which is, I mean, it wouldn't be out of place in a Looney Tunes cartoon, man. It's ridiculous. It it is. It really is. I mean, except Looney Tunes is actual classical music. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. You know that Eric Sawa, Eric Serra won a BMI Film Music Award for Goldeneye. I'm not surprised. But I looked into it. Right, like I couldn't believe this because when I saw this, I'm like, "What the hell? No way!" So I looked into the competition, and it turns out that that year everybody won. In 1996, right? Goldsmith won for Congo. Zimmer won for Broken Arrow and Crimson Tide. Alan Silvestri won for Father of the Bride Two and Grumpier Old Men. George Clinton won for Mortal Kombat. Alan Mech- <laughs> Alan Menken won for Pocahontas. Uh, Lenny Nikas won, won for Bridge of the Madison County. Babyface Edmonds won for Waiting to Exhale. Randy Edelman for While You Were Sleeping. And Michael Kamen for Mr. Holland's Opus. All of them won a BMI Film Music Award in 96. So what does that what does that even mean? Like, I don't, I, don't, I don't understand what that award means. And so I looked through the history of it and everybody, like, there's always more than one winner. So it's really just like you wrote a film score this year. Congratulations. Yeah. Pat on the back to you. I don't know. It's it's really strange, but maybe yeah. it has something to do about like the production of them or, or like it's a British. I, I, I actually don't know. I don't know what the hell that, that award is about, but that music didn't deserve anything. It was terrible. Should have <laughs> been left on the soundstage floor. It was really bad. And, and the chase is, is really kind of cringy to watch, to be perfectly honest. I, I know. Like, I think with better scoring, it might have worked a lot better. Of course, who is Bond chasing? Some some beautiful vampish woman in a Ferrari who later turns out to be Xenia on top. The movie's, I guess, hench, main henchwoman, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the car chase basically ends with uh, an on, like a whole thing of, I guess, Tour de France people being knocked over. A, a near crash with a tractor. Um, and Bond showing himself off to this like so excited the psycho eval who wants him to stop and it's almost like a terrible romantic comedy going on right now like I don't know what's happening and we see the Ferrari with Xenia spinning out and, and then she manages to drive away and then Bond puts the moves on the uh, psychological evaluator who probably should have had a better constitution mentally for something like that uh, yes I would think so and on top of that Bond also has a nice refrigerating depart- compartment for his uh, champagne and uh <laughs> oh, that was ridiculous as well. Like that's that's almost like trying to bring Connery back to life. And I've never I've never really felt like many of the champagne scenes. They work so well in the books, the champagne scenes. But they I've do. Al- I've always felt they come off really, really quite heavy in the films. I don't know why that is. It's like, like even Bond. Like, is he really going to want to drink champagne while he's doing this? Like, <laughs> seriously, middle yeah. of the day, middle of the day. Like, you got that great scene in the south of France in Hitchcock's To Kill a Thief or To Catch a Thief, where. Uh, Cary Grant and um, Grace Kelly up in a very similar environment, actually. And they have that picnic lunch with, in, in the car, you know, overlooking uh, Monte Carlo or whatever. And that it makes sense because they stop and it's slow. But Bond just like pulls to a to a handbrake stop and cracks open this perfectly preserved bottle of Bollinger or whatever it is. Like, I don't know. Like, I know it's a trope. I get that. But I just found like, I'm not, I'm not really enjoying these little things so far in the film and I don't know I, I, I'm noticing things 
as, I agree. as a viewer, you know? And then you go into the next sequence where Bond is now in Monte. It's a, it's a, it's a, he's in Monaco, and he's pulling up to his casino. We get, we get that trope of Bond going into the casino. All the people who work there know who he is and stuff. He notices the red Ferrari that Anatop was driving in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, inside the casino, they're playing Chemin de Fer. And, of course, Zinni Anatop is at the table. And we get another tropey Bond scene again, very familiar. It's, we're going all the way back to, like, Dr. No there, pretty much. And we get this exchange of words between Anatop and Bond that are flirtatious, but at the same time, very forced. Because I think with each innuendo, I was cringing at each innuendo. You know what I mean? Like, it just seems like there was some good dialogue in there, but then when those innuendos come in and it just feels like, okay, we get it. It's the, it's the sexual liberated woman. It's, it's post cold war era, you know, you know, like bond is an, is, 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 is an antique now. We get it. We get it. Yeah, we get it. Yeah. We get it. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's just another example of that kind of continuing throughout the movie at some parts. Yeah. I, I liked, I like Broston in the casino. I think this is kind of where what Ebert was saying I mean, he's a handsome guy. He, he was and, confident in that scene. I will, I will give you that. He was. Yeah. Sorry, it wasn't Ebert. It was the other guy, Peter Stack. I mean, yeah, he's he's attractive and he works these scenes fine. He feels very comfortable here. Uh, he looks good in what he's doing. And I also like uh, Famke Jansen's performance in this scene too. It yeah, is, she's really It is good. full of innuendo, of course, but that's not yeah. the actor's fault. They're pulling off these lines as best they can. And, and they do look a convincing uh, you know the, the conflict, the tension. It, it, I buy it. it. I mean, I like this stuff. Yeah, it, it was. It, I mean, it was just me. I think noticing the windows. I, I, I didn't really bother me before. They kind of just stuck in there. But it was a really good exchange. And you know, you have that line. It's like, and what rank do you pull with the motor vehicles department, Mister Bond? You know, like it, it was just kind of like went to a banality that was actually really believable dialogue at some parts. So I, I, I Temke Jansen was really good in that scene, despite the dialogue that I might find cringy. Um, I found her dialogue, I found that she was very strong in that scene and her and Brosnan had really good chemistry. Mm-hmm. And then I guess as a motivating incident, we get the sort of interlude on the, on the yacht, right? Where she's taking advantage of this Canadian guy to gain access to the, <laughs> to the, poor the Chuck. frigate. Yeah, poor Chuck. Yeah. <laughs> well, before that, we have Bond going to, uh, his, his, uh, was it his Aston Martin? Yeah. Well, he goes to his Aston Martin and he has a built in, I guess, printer, uh, communications device in there where Money Penny, uh, provides all the, all the info, all the details on Zinnia on a top to Bond. Yeah. And of course, and I mean, of course it implies that Money Penny is kind of, you know, part of the game as well because she's making puns too, right? Mm-hmm. So she's aware of what Bond is and she kind of, I think, finds it, I guess, you can tell from the, from her very first, even though you don't see her yet, by the, by, by the tone of her voice and everything, it seems like they're very aware what James Bond is and they probably find it kind of amusing in, in, in their own kind of way. I trust you'll say on top of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on. So this, so this interlude uh, with Bond investigating on a top, on a top is doing the dirty with poor Chuck, the Canadian admiral there, or whatever he is, uh, and uh, he gets um, choked by her deadly thighs. Yes, so that's how that. yeah. that's how on a top kills people. She uses her thighs. Well, not entirely, because the next day she shoots people without a silencer on this publicly attended frigate, and I don't understand that either. Like, how the hell did she shoot? And nobody heard those bullets. Like that's that to me seems like a real simple thing. Just put a silencer on the weapon so that. I, yes. I, I can go along with the plot, but the fact that this thing issues out an enormous sound 
and she just kind of steps up and puts the helmet on when she kills the pilots and hops into the helicopter to steal that. That, that to me, was a bit lame. Like, I figure someone on the fucking set should have figured that one out. Yeah. So while Anatop is killing Chuck, uh, uh, her accomplice basically gets his security pass, and this allows Anatop and her accomplice to board the French frigate and steal the Eurocopter that's on display for some presentation uh, in Monaco Harbor. Yes. And uh, and of course, during that sequence, during that part is when you mentioned about the two pilots for the plane for the helicopter, sorry, uh, being executed very loudly. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps Campbell thought that the silencer did not emphasize, I guess, the dramatic, uh, the, the drama of that moment, I suppose. But I, I, I think a silencer would have been fine. But it is very, it is very kind of a very violent moment though when those, when there's like they're just shot. Like you, you can almost like smell the smoke when they were shot by that gun. You know what I mean? You could picture like, you know, the perforated chests and stuff like that. And maybe a silencer they thought wasn't strong enough for the scene. I don't know. Well, I mean, they're on a... No, I got to disagree with you on that stroke because they're... they're, I mean, I wouldn't make an apology for that particular scene. I thought it was was one of the biggest mistakes in the film because they're they're in a public environment. The whole idea of going under disguise is to be in disguise. What's the point of being in disguise if you're then going to be seen as the one who rattles off these shots in open air and kills two people, like literally a deck below where there's a fucking reception for for this thing that's about to be stolen? I'm not saying I I, I don't agree with you. I'm just saying is that I can see uh, for dramatic presence i can see a director actually eschewing logic for the purposes of making a more dramatic moment okay fair enough all right bond bond uh goes to the yacht he finds chuck dead after i guess breaking the neck of the poor page of the poor like uh I, I guess he was some kind of bodyguard on board the on board the yacht i don't know who the guy was but he got like strangled and his neck broken with a towel in a pretty brutal fashion mm-hmm. um <laughs> so bond rushes to the to the um uh, to the frigate, of course, no one's letting him on board because they have a security pass. And the Eurocopter takes off after the de- during the demonstration, and uh, that, that's it. It's stolen, and uh, mission failed. Mission failed. Yes, and, and and this this Tiger helicopter is described in the film as being Europe's answer to the uh, electronic battlefield. That's right, because it can withstand electro yeah. uh, electromagnetic. We- weapons such as EMPs. Right. So let's use that then to segue quickly back to the scene where we meet M. Uh, but be- if it, wait, before we meet M, though, do we not make our first uh, journey to uh, Siberia to the Severnaya research station? Oh yeah, so we do. Yes, yeah, okay. And we're inter- we're introduced to our the heroine of the story, uh, Natalia Simonova, a, a programmer, yeah. second level programmer. It's. I tell you what. It's. It's a long time. These. These characters. Like the pacing of this. This opening is. Is long. It takes a long time to get everybody introduced. Like we're talking forty it, minutes by the time everybody's in. It does. Yeah. Absolutely. I noticed that. Like it was, I noticed. Like this movie is kind of slow. Not like in a bad way, but in terms of a modern. Uh, modern film, it definitely moves at a slower pace. Even slower than most Bond films, actually. Oh yeah, I. Th- I think this film moves much slower than the Bond films, and I do actually feel like some of these. Some of these stretches are too long. I feel like it is a bit a bit dull, to be honest. But we'll we'll see how dull when we go to score this. Yeah, absolutely. So let's uh, just let's just jump then to we're introduced to uh, Natalia Simonova, who's like the second level programmer at the Severnaya ins- uh, installation in Siberia. We meet her uh, pubescent acting nerdy friend uh, Bor- and colleague G- Boris Greshenko. He's like a top level uh, security. Com- computer expert, uh, played by uh, Alan Cumming, 
And and if I if I recall, uh, he's described by our grandmother as being a nice freak. <laughs> a nice freak. I love yeah. that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Maybe she saw X Men, uh, X Men X Two United, and she liked his Nightcrawler. I I, I have no idea. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, but basically, in a nutshell, I mean, let, let's just talk through the strokes and the beats of this this scene because this yeah. is about a 20, 25 minute scene too, or about twenty yeah. minutes all here. So Oromov, uh shows up. Uh, so once we introduce those people, um, no, actually no. Once we introduce those people, they're, they're established. We then jump to MI6 in London, and Bond is arriving in the evening, being called in. Uh, Money Penny is there. We're introduced to the new era Money Penny, played by Samantha Bond, and she basically brings uh, Bond in to meet uh, Tanner, who is the, I guess, the head of like the intelligence division, I guess, in that in that particular section, like satellite security, that sort of thing. And uh, and that also the same scene we meet M, and at the time they are looking at the satellite mo- movement around the Severnaya station. Yes, and what they notice is that the well there is none really the uh, the station has been completely wiped out. Yeah, and this is and this is revealed in the scene uh, where uh, Oromov, the 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 big the big hatted. Uh, Russian villain in the opening sequence who executed 006 arrives with none other than uh, Xenia Anatop dressed like she came from Nazi she-wolves of the SS like <laughs> fetish or something. Um, she actually looks pretty cute with that with that uniform on. It, it's almost like she's out on, on a fashion runway or something with, holding a machine gun. It was really interesting actually. Um, well, she's, a very, she's a very striking actress. She's a very attractive woman and she plays the part well. Yeah. But it was just kind of the, the, the choice of suit was really interesting. She, so she's there in disguise as basically some deputy to Oromov. And Oromov is telling the head of the station, uh, you know, we're going to open up and do a test on the GoldenEye, right? Mm-hmm. And which is like the secret uh, Cold War weapon the Soviets are protecting that's through Severnaya. And this is where all of a sudden, once they're able to get access to the, the GoldenEye device, uh, on top then, on Oromov's orders, kills everyone inside. And luckily... Natalia was getting coffee at the time. Yeah, so she, yeah, of course, she's quite safe. Uh, she and then she manages to hide up, presumably up in the air vents, or that's what she wants people to think if they go looking for her. But she's actually underneath the cupboards. And then, Smart uh, girl. yeah, and then the, on the top goes in and has one of these quasi-sexual moments with the assault rifle where she destroys the ceiling and she lays out this lame line about ventilating someone. And then they she <laughs> then, then they both disappear in the helicopter and. Uh, and then Simona, Simonova, uh, uh, Natalia comes out and she sees everybody's dead and she has a little crying episode and you know all this is fine. It's it, I mean it's I mean I, I'm speeding I'm speeding through it but it, yeah it, and the golden eye is activated. Well on the screen. Yeah, the golden eye yeah. yeah, is activated. activated. She then escapes when the satellite conveniently, you know, or, or the dish conveniently uh, falls Collapses. through. Yeah, yeah, I don't I don't quite understand that. Why if it was just struck useless? Why it would also lose its structural integrity, but whatever, it doesn't matter. It's a film. It, so. it, it seems like not only does like the electronic, any with electronic circuit or whatever, uh, not not just stop completely, but the golden eye also makes it blow up at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Well, whatever. I, I can go with that. You know, you want to argue that? That's fine. Just be consistent. Yeah. Be consistent. What you do, so I buy the weapon. And so the <laughs> exactly. thing then falls through, and then and she climbs up and she escapes in some sort of. Uh, some oh this is bizarre some sort of a dog sled is just there waiting for her so she hops on a fucking dog sled and the next time we see her she's stepping out of a train and the same clothes but with this 
coat that I don't know where the hell she got the coat, but she hasn't changed or washed. <laughs> and when Sarah Sarah was watching this with me, she's like, Jesus, she hasn't washed in like four days. Like, what's going on? Like, and then Bond just like jumps straight to her bones, and it, it's it's a little yeah, strange. It's a little. I made, the, I made the comment to my uh, to uh, Jeff, uh, my my roommate. I said she must smell really bad, but she doesn't look like she smells bad. I don't know her make her makeup's her makeup's great, but uh, sure. yeah. Oh, one thing to point out too in that whole sequence, that whole incident with the, the with the satellite collapsing into the dish after the gold night gets fired, the Russian MiG planes crashing into it. Um, by the way, it's, it's the Russian MiGs crashing into the installation that makes the dish collapse, not the gold night blast itself. Okay, thank you. Well, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. I also liked how they used like like models for that sequence. If you look closely, they actually use like not CGI, but they use like models to do that sequence, yeah, which is they very do. old school. And I was going We're to still ask, 1995, right? Well, I was going to ask you that model. I mean, is that a production design thing? Because that's Peter Lamont, right? Yeah, Peter Lamont. Yeah, who took over after uh, after David Meddings? Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, Derek Meddings. Sorry, passed away. So would that have been his remit? That would be and stuff like that. Most yeah. likely, yeah, absolutely. Not, it's not set decoration, is it? No, I don't think so because that has to do with mo- like set decoration is a different thing altogether. But yeah. it would go under the thing of art direction. Oh, well, in that case, you got uh, Neil Lemon, uh, Andrew Ackland Snow, and Catherine Brunner. That's right. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, moving on. Yeah, let, let's leave this behind. And imp- an important thing to note as well is that Boris was not in the Severnaya installation. We last we saw Boris was he was having a smoke when the Tiger helicopter of Orimov showed up. Yes. Yeah. And he didn't really look surprised to see it either. No, he did not. And that, of course, is a plot point because he's part of this larger picture. That's I right. I don't want to talk much about Boris's uh, behavior. You know, the scene that between him and Natalia introducing both characters and their sort of, as you said, flirtatious antagonism. That's just that's just part of the two of them. Yes. And Boris is. I mean, they're both programmers. One of them is less clever because she's a woman, but she turns out to be more clever afterwards. Uh, and that's fine. That that too is fine. I have no problem with that. But. Uh, all the computer stuff here it's like messages coming up on the screen whenever they're doing anything right like you, you hit you hit a button or you, you and how yeah, fast, like, he, how fast do they type by the way like this is yeah nuts, the typing like, <laughs> i are, know are computers that new that everybody watching this film is just gonna go along with the fact that wow a computer programmer must be able to type like lightning because that's what he's doing right I don't think a computer would actually that kind of computer they were using would actually be able to process those kind of, <laughs> kind of typing. To yeah. be honest with you, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, yeah, they're they're pretty strong though because the computers in this film all have pretty like pretty reliable and ridiculously reliable Wi-Fi or broadband signals, Ethernet cables. Like. Yeah, well, said <laughs> Spike, but no, I mean, you got explosions going around in Cuba. You've got a fucking train that gets wireless, like, and he, and she's able to track him like through this train that's just derailed or something. Like, yeah, you know, it, it's pretty crazy the way the computers are are privileged in this film. Well, no one knew about what really what the internet was until, until like that's around right. that time, right? Yes. It was still this murky yeah. thing that you yeah. know. So, yeah. and I and I I'm happy to give them that. I'm happy to give them that <laughs> and just be like, okay, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to criticize them too much for that, but because we're looking at it 25 to, or what, 23 years later, we're coming back and criticizing the way the technology is used. But it is, it is sort of, it's sort of unbelievable, even maybe for the time, you know, connect online through some of these explosions and natural disasters that they're facing or electrical disasters yeah. that they're facing. I have to say too, I mean, I just don't really buy Isabella Skorupko with like her beauty mark on the side of her face and her hairstyle. I just don't buy her as a computer programmer. No. 
Well, let's move ahead. Let's yeah. Move ahead so and talk, everyone talk in about M, six, M, okay? Yeah, M. Yeah, we got first introduction of M. Uh, Tanner and Bond uh, and M are watching everything unfold at Serenaya, and it looks like there's a new mission uh, uh, about to be activated. Bond meets. So, uh, <clears throat> so we meet M for the first time. Uh, she gives Bond uh, her the uh, briefing uh, that she's going to give him the mission to find GoldenEye and, uh, and and dismantle it or find everybody who's involved with it. And this is her introduction to J- Judy Dench's M. And uh, she is uh, queen of no- evil queen of numbers, as Tanner says. Uh, she's all about the, the numbers. She, she doesn't rely on instincts. You know, the facts have to be in front of her, whereas Bond is much is a very instinctual type of personality. Um, she pretty much denigrates Bond, calling him a sexist, misogynist dinosaur. She he thinks she's cavalier about life and everything like that. And she's, she's, you know, she's a ball breaker, I guess you could say. I don't want to use that kind of sexist word, but that's kind of what they're trying to emphasize here. And I think they're, um, I think that's a good thing. I mean, we were talking about the the token feminist just because it's a strong female with an assault rifle. But, you know, we're still looking at her through a male gaze of sexuality. Whereas with M, I think she is, I think she's a very powerful feminine character. And I like that. I think that is good. And I, I think that's one of the best things about the film is the Judy Dench moments, you know. We'll, we'll yeah. talk about it when we get to our highlights and lowlights. But that, that for me, I, I really like the scene with the two of them. I think that they work well. They've got good chemistry, good tension. And her introducing herself as a figure who... Uh, and you know she doesn't even keep the same drink as her predecessor, right? She's got bourbon. She does something different, and that, that's that, that too is its own, its own little message to to Bond. And she doesn't buy into the uh, to the double O section, but of course Bond's story over the next few films is going to be trying to convince her, I guess, of of its worth. And she says, you know, she's not afraid to send someone to the death. And so all this stuff in MI six, I really like all this stuff. Yeah, first I like how uh, when, they, when they introduced Samantha Bond's Money Penny, she's flirtatious, but she's also in control of the situation the entire time. She lets Bond go out of the elevator first, so she can size him up. It, it, it's a totally different yeah. dynamic than what Bond were previously used to when it comes to Bond at MI6. Yes, because it's not it's not Mad Men anymore. No, not quite the same, is it? <laughs> no. All right, so then after, after you know, uh, M makes it very clear what she expects to do. She wants Bond to go out to, to uh, retrieve the golden eye and not to make it personal if anything else is here because, of course, Oromov's the one who they think killed uh, 006. And so, you know, she, she reminds Bond of his importance to the mission and what you got to do and then get back, right? But she does say to him, you know, come back alive because, you know, there is that part of her that still likes him, right? Yeah, absolutely. And she doesn't want to lose, if she doesn't need to, uh, a an body, asset. An asset, that's right. So even though she pretends she doesn't really see him as an asset. And so then we move on, and we've got this scene where Oromov meets with Russia's defense council, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, the uh, defense minister, Mishkin. Yeah, he's a, he's a pretty cool character, even though he doesn't last long. I like the fact... I wanted more of him. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he's pretty cool. Uh, he's played by... A guy, yeah, Chekikario, and and he's he's really good in the film because he knows that Oromov's up to something, but uh, unfortunately, he never gets to, uh, you know, he never gets to reveal it because he's killed in a scene that we'll talk about shortly. Yeah, so when Natalia gets off the train and rides in Saint Petersburg, um, and goes into an, uh, I guess a an internet cafe, or goes into like a uh, not an internet cafe, but she goes into an IBM distributor, hmm. uh, where they have the showroom of all the computers and everything, which reminded me of like. That's an IBM showroom. It looks like the you know like 
the storage room for the computer department at a high school or something like that. Well, that's right. Uh, I mean, that's what she pre- she pretends to be representing an international school or something, doesn't? Yeah, she? exactly. So she gets get, she gets a hold of a computer and she tries to find Boris, right? And of course, she falls into that trap, and uh, Boris uh, ha- 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 has her meet him at the Lady of Smolensk Church, and Zenia Anatop is there as well. So Boris was the traitor. We already knew that, though. Yes, indeed. And then Bond arrives in uh, St. Petersburg, and we meet his CIA agent after a little bit of a, a rapport established, you know, the old school vulgar American versus the sophisticated Brit. We get that whole, it's that Felix Leiter, James Bond dynamic, I suppose, and it, I, but kind of in a much more, the character, um, Jack, uh, what was the character's name? Uh, Jack, Jack Wade. Uh, Jack Wade, yeah. yeah. Uh, they're kind of, yeah, he's not Felix Leiter, that's for sure. No, he's not, but he's got his own charm as well. He does. Fun fact, uh, Joe Don Baker, who plays uh, Wade, played Brad Whitaker in The Living Daylights, who was a villain. That's right, yeah. He's a good actor, yeah. actually. He's, I like him. He's a good actor in the roles he does. Yeah, absolutely. Have you seen so, him in anything? Like, does he, does he still, still doing work? I don't know. I know he's famous for a movie called Walking Tall way back in the in the early 80s, or late 70s or something. It was like just like a small town guy with, with a 4x4 taking on a whole bunch of gangsters that took over his town. It's based on a true story, apparently. It's supposed to be a really good movie, but that's what he's famous for. And then I guess that's how he got the role in The Living Daylights as Brad Whitaker, the arms dealer. Cool. Moving forward, though, Bond uses Wade to get in touch with an old KGB contact adversary of his named Valentin Zukowski. So Wade arranges a meeting between Zukowski and Bond at Zukowski's nightclub or bar or whatever the heck it is. Yeah. Or he, it's his cover, really. It's his cover, yeah, because Valentin is ex-KGB and like, all, like most ex-KGBs in the post-Soviet world, they're now Russian mob. <laughs> yeah, and Bond uses them. They've got history. Bond uses him, uh, but... Clears, clears the air with him for a previous injury uh, by giving him intel on something that would <laughs> help him privately and professionally, and he gets that he gets the connection made. Absolutely, because uh, apparently in the past Bond had to shoot uh, Zukowski, so because of that Zukowski has a, a limp. Uh, so there's a bit of, a, and also stole his woman at the time. So there's a bit of a, I guess, a tolerable hatred that Zukowski has for Bond. Yeah, and I, I'm sure there's some respect in there as well. But yes, it, it's from it's from here that we get the the hotel scene uh, where in the pool and steam room Bond meets on a top. I mean, it's a nice atmosphere here. This part of the film, it's well filmed, and I, I do like the way that the, the steam isn't just you know representing sexuality and all that sort of lust, but you've also got the idea of of, of disguises. You know, you get the steam operating on that sort of atmospheric level too. So I like I like this stuff. This is all good. This is all good. Uh-huh. I like how the spa almost looks almost like a Roman bath almost and how it's designed, right? And yeah. then you're thinking about it. It's the head of the organization that Valentin is talking about, this Yanis, mm-hmm. uh, who was a Lienz Kozak tr- trader. Uh, our friend Jeff will talk about Lienz Kozaks um, and how they relate to the story and outside of that. Um, it, like it kind of that name Yanis fits even more now in terms of like, I guess, the Roman connection there, right? Uh, Yanis, of course, being the two-faced Roman god of, of openings and... Uh, and doorways. Mm-hmm. So this is where Anatop has her engagement with Bond and tries to, you know, have a bit of fun with him before he is brought <laughs> before he's brought to Yanis. But she gets, or, yeah, she's under his thumb. He gets the, the upper hand, uh, 
and eventually forces her to bring him, even though that's what she was going to do anyway. And this is where I was saying earlier, you know, it's a little bit... I don't really like this part of the film because I think it's the beginning of a really dragged out scene. Uh, I don't, I never really cared much about Trevelyan at the start of the film anyway. And there was little to no development of Bond's grief or thought of him up until this moment. So the surprise isn't, to me at least, like a really wow surprise. It's just kind of like... Yeah, oh, it's, oh, okay. it's, kind of, it's, it's, it's um, okay, I have motivation and we now have a villain. Great, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's basically what that scene establishes. And I do get what they're trying to do here with where the, the rendezvous takes place and all of that. And that, that that's yeah. fine, you know, that's good. I was surprised though that Sean Bean was alive again because he was killed off earlier and... He's a walking spoiler. I mean, whatever the guy's in, he's killed in, right? So, well, I, yeah. I mean, you're going back, aren't you? And you're talking about that with with the lens of today. But I guess you're yeah. right. This this may have started. This may have started something for him as a as a character. Yeah. Or as an actor of characters. So yeah. Okay. So Natalia and Bond are both put into the the helicopter. Tiger helicopter. Yeah, the tiger yes. helicopter, and they're they're tied up, um, almost fully restrained. <laughs> Uh, Almost fully restrained. Yeah, with the exception of uh, the eject button, which Bond is able to use before the missiles that the helicopter launches come back and destroy. Yeah, and then of course, just as they parachute from the pod to the ground, then the Russian army, uh, the Russian army armed forces show up and arrest them and bring them to the uh, facility in Saint Petersburg, where they're brought into interrogation room. Mm -hmm. This actually begins what I think is the best part of the film. I like Green. the I like I like the interrogation scene. I don't just like the atmosphere and the environment, which I think is really really good. I like the acting here. I like Mishkin coming in. I like Oromov's desperation. Although why he hands Bond back his gun, I just do not understand. I know they're trying to frame all that stuff. I get that, but why did he just kill him? Like how many opportunities have they had to kill this guy right now? But it's then, almost like there was a mutual understanding what Oromov was going to do and what Bond was going to do. So Bond's like, "Fuck it, I'll take the gun anyways." Right? Oh, that's well, what yeah. you want to do. And Brosnan, play, <laughs> Brosnan plays the scene that way. He because yeah. he, he has that look on his face, and, and you know I buy that. But I just think like these villains are fucking morons. And uh, even for Bond film, like yeah. just okay, ha have one moment where you want to talk and explain everything and about your master plan, like the Doctor Evil thing, right? But yes. uh, but okay, just do that once and then then look like you're trying to kill him. But now they just do it like three or four times here and I just don't get why they haven't killed him already. But obviously we're happy that they haven't because if they did, we wouldn't have the rest of the film. That's so right. th this escape from the archives is great. I really like the archive scene. Uh, I think the action yeah. is good. I, th I think it's well filmed. I think it's well edited. I like this entire sequence. Yeah. I like Brosnan is ruthless with the gun, like he is, sorry, yeah. with, with, yeah. with the AK forty seven. That was that he was like that shows Bond, the proficient cold killer, uh, who who can also put almost like an action movie um, dimension to him. Yeah, and stepping on from that, uh, I like the tank. I think that's cool. Yeah. There's some, <laughs> there's some good stuff with the tank. I do have a problem with the tank rolling over that police car though. Like I, I can't talk about this without going back to it you know it rolls over the police car russia drives on the same side of the road as north america does and its steering column is on the same side of the car so that guy is dead but in the next scene he steps out of his fucking car like oh shit man i like i bust a tire or something you know it's yeah absolutely stupid and the only thing i can think is is it's like they, they want to on the set well or they want to or they want to save they want to save Bond's hero guilt or something like what? Yeah. He's, he's not allowed to kill innocent people because he's not a bad guy. Is that it? Or, <laughs> I don't know, man. I honestly don't know. I really don't know. But hey, man, it's not worth it. The whole saving the world from the Golden Eye is not worth it if uh, Bor if you know if uh, 
Boris for uh, somebody, you know, gets killed, right? So yeah, I guess so. Okay, if yeah, if, if the guy, and then you get that Perrier Boris product placement as well, which is is pretty obscene, but it's still cool to see the tank bust through that. The Perrier <laughs> truck. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, and then Bond gets to the train, manages to get on the train, uh, which is kind of dumb in itself. But anyway, no, then he, then he doesn't he drive ahead of the train or something. What does he, he do? Tries, like, he plays he plays chicken with it and then fires at like the at at, at the front of the car, the front of the train. Yeah, but like isn't he, isn't the train already like far off? Isn't it, hasn't it already left? How does Bond get the, the that ahead of the train, or how does he know where it's going? Like, how does he know the Russian train lines? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not, I don't okay, have an answer. I don't not, have an answer for that. I'm not trying to. <laughs> I'm not trying to be overcritical, but is that not what happens? Does he not take the tank to some spot where the train just happens to be going? And how does he that's get ahead true. of it? Uh, does does this tank really move like quick? Yeah, that's true. It, or it must have like uh, Fast and the Furious, some kind of like nitrous oxide boosters or something like that. <laughs> Oh, I like the video. Yeah, the video game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it was a Fast and the Furious uh, movie, you know, Vin Diesel would have had the. I would believe that. I would believe Vin Diesel coming out of that tank. I would believe it in a a Fast and the Furious movie. (laughs) Anyway, it doesn't matter. Okay, like, I'm still enjoying what I'm watching, but I'm I'm becoming progressively more and more aware that it is really, really ridiculous. And they're asking me to suspend a lot of things not just my disbelief that tanks can move fast but like my disbelief in technology and all sorts of things i'm just putting on the shelf right now to enjoy the moment but i'm still (laughs) i'm still enjoying it because i like brosnan he's he's got good chops we talked about martin campbell's good chops earlier a little bit brosnan's looking good in the role he's doing his own thing he's trying to carve out a niche for himself he's not he's not flat in any of these scenes really i haven't found yet whether you no. like whether you like him or not, you can't really say that he his acting is poor because it isn't, no. is it? His acting is not poor. Some no. of the some of the lines are duds, but he he's okay. And eventually he gets on the train, and this this is an okay scene. Um, I don't think I don't know, man. Like I I don't like the fact that Trevelyan also has to be a sex pest. Like why is that necessary? Why does he yeah. need to like lick the girl, like make out with her, and force himself on her? Like not. You, know, you don't need to villainize him anymore, you know, like give him exactly, some dignity yeah, yeah. to what he's doing. Because I think by doing that, you take away the emotional connection of the character of, of, of Trevelyan because you know what he means to Bond. And by yeah. by making him a worser person than just being, a, being you know, someone who's out for revenge, you make him also just a plain out villain as well. And Bond isn't in that scene to see it and to get to get nervous or to get angry or, or to like to like, you know, get your hands off my girl. Like he's just doing this because... He wants to he wants to force himself on her, and I, I just think that, like you say, it doesn't add anything to the character, and it, it it's not a necessary scene. No, definitely not. It's just not a necessary scene. More and more, I found watching that movie, I thought Oromov was almost a, a better villain in, yeah. in his own way. <laughs> well, anyway, Oromov. But he was he was his end here. He does, yeah, very quickly, and almost you don't even notice it. Mm-hmm. And so when Bond does show up, uh, inevitably, he gets locked into some some carriage. Where, <laughs> it's not a carriage. It's like a friggin' missile defense system. Like, uh, the missile defense system. Yeah, a missile train. Yeah. So anyway, they, they, get him, uh, they get him and he uses his laser watch and digs out at the bottom yeah. and that's fine and he escapes. And then because she's a level two programmer, and let me tell you what, man, you get an awful lot of skill with a level two programmer. She... Natalia is able to track Boris, who by now she knows is behind this or working with them, is able yeah. to track track to Cuba, someplace in Cuba. And That's right. Then they travel to the Bahamas. 
Is it the Bahamas they, they go to? I think it's the Bahamas because that's the closest way you can get to Cuba, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, so they, they go and they meet Jack Wade and Wade then helps him uh, get in to Cuba. And from there, we got the denouement of the film, which I'll let you carry. Yeah. And Jack Wade, of course, gives him the plane in exchange for bombing around in the BMW, as oh, yeah, he says. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, he, he gets yeah. the BMW. The Z3, which we haven't mentioned. That's the car in this film is the Z3. It's an attractive Z3. blue car. And I remember yeah. in, the, in the late 90s, these things were everywhere. These huh. were, now, I don't mean everywhere like on the streets of Newfoundland because, trust me, they, <laughs> they weren't. But they were everywhere in terms of media. And, and Bond getting the BMW, that was a big, that was a big product, uh, a co- corporate deal too and it was a big yes. thing with the media relations so i remember all of this stuff from the from the time of the film and it's a smart looking car it definitely is but uh it's no aston martin absolutely anyway no, so not. uh no, it's not. On so to now Cuba. we get yeah so bond and uh, natalia take uh wade's uh plane and they're flying over cuba and uh they're, they're trying to find uh, the dish somewhere where Trevelyan's base would be, where they can get it, where they can access the Golnai satellite. But there's no dish to be found, and they fly over a, I guess an, a, a, I guess a, um, what's the term called for it? It's, it, I guess it's a landlocked lake. I guess you could say, like it's not connected to a river or anything like that. It's just like a, a basically a lake, like like a crater lake uh, in the middle of the Cuban jungle somewhere. And a missile suddenly comes out of the uh, the waters and brings the plane down. And this leads to the final confrontation between Bond and uh, Zinnia on top. Mm-hmm. Uh, m- m- miraculously, conveniently, uh, the fiery plane crash uh, manages to yield no casualties. Um, and Zinnia on top arrives to finish Bond off. And she comes down from a helicopter pro- repelling rope uh, and uh, to, to, to kill Bond. And she puts his thighs around him again, and they go through that whole song and dance. And Bond manages to get a hold of her gun at a weak moment and uh, perforates the, the helicopter pilot and then drags, um, which, which now attached to the rope, attached to the helicopter. Once the helicopter starts to yaw forward and begin to crash, and, and crash this pulls Xenia right into, uh, I guess, crucified on a tree, her whole body pretty much destroyed from within by the, um, by, by the um, uh, impact. Mm-hmm. Um, the inertia of, of it all. And it's it's a very kind of obvious sexual reference there too. Yes. And so exhausted, Natalia and Bond are taken prisoner uh, and they go once again without being killed to hear more about what it is that Trevelyan plans to do. By this time, I'm tuned out. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the setting. I'm interested in the environment, but I'm tuned out listening to Trevelyan tell another another facet of his master plan and we get to see boris and there's that reunion and all that's fine and one of the little q gadgets the the bomb pen goes through this this pretty heavy-handed uh delivery of oh who's got it and how many times are we counting it and i can't imagine i can't imagine watching this for the first time really paying attention to the counts of the clicks but maybe someone out there was uh yeah campbell was trying to do some kind of like hitchcockian moment with that and i think it just wasn't really noticeable Nope, wasn't noticeable. Uh, anyway, Bond manages to uh, escape and set some explosives, uh, set some explosives, and then he stops the dish from kind of uh, you know pairing up with the satellite, which is looking to take out London by this point. That's the new target. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Trevelyan wants to put put London and and the rest of the world in the Stone Age and steal money at the same time. 
Yep, that's exactly correct. And that's what they're going to do. Only it doesn't really work because Bond screws it up. All he tended, all he did was stick a, a stick in the chain. And, of, uh, of, of the of the main of, of the satellite antenna, which, by the way, rises out of out of the water. Uh, we forgot to mention that because it was under 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 the lake the entire time. Oh, yeah. And I suppose if if I really wanted to think about that, I'd be disappointed in what I came out with, because how is that possible? It's not like in You Only Live Twice where they just got that false, false water. surface. Yeah. Like, this is actually coming out of the water. And is it is it electrical thing? Is it electrical? Yeah, it, it had, yeah, it must be. So, how the fuck does that work? Yeah, where, where they pump the water to? That's a really good question. Do they um, drain? Do, do they do they drain it? Like it, it's a fake lake, though, isn't it? The, the thing yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fake lake. Yeah. So the crater probably didn't have any water in it, and, the, and then it was filled with water, so they could conceal the satellite dish. So they had yeah. to have some kind of pumps or something going on. All right. That's that's a lot of money, man, for a guy who's defect. Anyway, whatever. Nine years, I guess you can do it, right? If you, if you uh, master plan, life, right? Master you, plan. As you said, master. So basically, this leads to Natalia and Bond escaping the, the, the burning facility and uh, then Bond making its way to the uh, satellite array and uh, damaging uh, so, that it, so that it doesn't move any further. And of course, by this point, Natalia is asked to hold back and Bond is now being pursued by Trevelyan. And this leads into a knockdown, pretty brutal, actually, a really good fight sequence, like in that crammed area on the bottom of the satellite dish. Yes, a really good fight sequence, and I to me, it's the, it's the most emotion and pathos those two have had in the entire movie is in that sequence. I found like you could feel the 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 hate and the frustration and the resentment in that whole sequence. Yeah, uh, to a certain extent, you're right. Like it is a very good scene. It's a good fight sequence. We've just got simple. Well, I say simple, but we've we've got be- more believable strikes against the characters here. You know, their physical combat is is it's good. And Bond grabbing a chain and throwing it randomly, you know what I mean? Yeah, That's like you've got you've got a, you've got some of your desperation stuff, which is nice because I mean Roger Moore would never have fought like that, and uh, Daniel Craig does, you know. And so yes. I think that this is kind of transitory or transitioning into into a new kind of fight, and this is good because we know this is what Martin Campbell does well. He does these types of things well, yeah. And uh, it's it's well edited this sequence. And yeah, fine. If if it weren't for the fact that Trevelyan allowed Bond to live so many times, I would feel like he does have you know, a, a grudge to bear here. But the fact is, he's only got himself to blame. That's right. And so maybe, maybe that's part of his anger. Who knows? It's part of his anger. Yeah, absolutely. And then it leads, this pretty much leads to Trevelyan getting the, the upper edge with Bond going down to the bottom of the service ladder, hanging onto dear life and Trevelyan following him down to finish him. And then, of course, this uh, juxtaposed with the destruction of the golden eye burning up in the atmosphere. Boris screaming. Natalia no- noticing a helicopter pilot I don't know, having a smoke, taking a, having a piss. I don't know what he's doing. But uh, I think this is the helicopter that was, wait, was waiting for Trevelyan's signal to pick him up. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. So then this leads to the final kind of like fight, uh, very precarious, uh, vertigo-inducing fight at the bottom of, this, of the satellite array uh, with just the dish like about 500 or so feet below. And uh, eventually Bond gets the upper hand and he has Trevelyan by the boot. And echoing the line uh, that uh, they they shared in the beginning of the movie in this flashback sequence, for England, James, and uh, of course Bond is for me. And then let's go the boot and Trevelyan, so presumably falls to his death, but the guy's still alive, and it's pretty brutal actually. And uh, I found that very refreshing that the villain just doesn't disappear into the, you know, into the void, you know, after falling with, with like a Willem scream, he's still alive. 
And then, of course, that's when the dish collapses finally, and uh, and Natalia shows up uh, hijacking the helicopter, and Bond manages to get away, and the dish collapses on top of Trevelyan, and Boris somehow survives until, of course, the liquid coolant comes comes and sprays all over him and pretty oh, much uh, ends <laughs> his reign of terror. I mean, yeah, I think that Terminator 2 has got a lot to answer for here because <laughs> there was a period in the 90s, wasn't there? It was like liquid nitrogen was everywhere in film. Like everybody had a bit of liquid nitrogen for the scenes, right? Demolition and, Man, yeah. X-Files at one point. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, yeah, so yeah, that, and that's sad. And then, of course, Jack Weed comes back and he says that ridiculous line about debriefing each other at Guantanamo or some crazy thing like that, which is, now, that's by the something way... That, you don't want to have at Guantanamo now is a debriefing because yeah, other stuff goes on at Gitmo now, you know what I mean? <laughs> that, that, for what it's worth, is my worst line of the whole film. Maybe yeah. you two would like to finish debriefing each other at Guantanamo. It's not yeah. the only one, but anyway, that was yeah. Pretty bad. That was pretty bad. I also like the fact that they were about to make out, and I kind of had a kind of, a, I don't know, this funny thing in my mind where, where they just keep going at whatever they were doing, and the soldiers were there, this were like, were, um, Wade's Marines were just kind of like snickering, you know, like underneath the camo as this was going on. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, for some reason I thought that would be very amusing, but they didn't do that, of course, because it's, you know, it's PG, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's that. That's the, that's the basic plot of, well, it's not the basic plot, it's the basic and detailed stroke plot of GoldenEye done. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, look, we're finding our feet here with this the first episode. We're getting our sense of pacing and timing, so you can bet that we'll tighten up on these these episode uh, plot summaries when, as as we go through. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's talk now uh, about what Fleming would think. <laughs> um, what would Fleming think about this film? Uh, this is a tricky one because usually in this part of the show, this is note seven, by the way, Bond by Numbers, note seven. What we wanted to do here is make connections to the source material, the canon, including a short reading, if we can, from the titular novel or the story that, you know, represents the film we're discussing, regardless of how faithful uh, it, it might be to the original. We want to make a Fleming connection. In this particular instance, we've only got a very, very uh, subtle connection, and it has to do with the name of the property, which I've done a bit of research on. But... Yeah, what do you, what would Fleming think now? To those I think you he like the title. The, I think he would like the title, but to those yeah. listeners who haven't read the Fleming books, uh, this question might be a bit disingenuous. But Ian Fleming had a very precise vision of Bond, and although his Bond evolved a little bit throughout the fourteen novels and or stories of books he, he produced, I think that Fleming would be happy with this film. I think he would be okay with it if he was watching it as a contemporary in the nineties. Yeah, not during the Cold War because he like he, not you know. <laughs> no, he wouldn't. No, he would not. He would not approve. What is this fantasy world where there's no Cold War? What's going on here? Why are these women talking to Bond, treating him like a piece of meat? You know. What I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think well, Zontop would scare the bloody hell out of him. <laughs> he wouldn't like that. He would not like that. I just finished a book. I just finished a book by uh, Matthew Parker called uh, Golden Eye, uh, written about. Fleming's Jamaica and Fleming's home, which was called Goldeneye. And so what Josh and I decided to do with this episode, and this is a part of the the, the, the series that I'm going to take on, and Josh will do the production stuff and I'll, and I'll do the, the connections to the source material stuff. But what we decided to do was look through the record of, of Fleming's relationship with Goldeneye itself as a property, because the story of Goldeneye was written, I got the notes here, because there's a couple of credits for the writing. Michael France... Uh, came up with a story for this. Jeffrey Kane, Bruce Feinstein are credited as writing the screenplay. So 
we're not going to dig into that, but I do have some info on GoldenEye as a property, which might just be of interest if, if you'd like it. Yeah, if you want to give us share a little bit of a, like a blurb from that. Well, I've, I've got a little bit more than the blurb, but it's certainly not more than two or three minutes to, uh, tops of it. But anyway. Bring it on. So <clears throat> the property, uh, after World War II, Fleming said to his friend Ivor Bryce that he was going to go to Jamaica, retire, and write books once the war was over. Okay, that's what he said he wanted to do. And so Ivor Bryce, his uh, longtime school friend, went to Jamaica. And this is what Fleming said to him. Ten acres or so, away from towns and on the coast. There must be cliffs of some sort and a secret bay and no roads between the house and the shore. When you fixed it for me, I'll build a house and write and live there. So, Ivor Bryce goes to Jamaica. He gets in touch with this local land agent whose name is Reggie Eckhart. And he buys land. He buys land for £2,000, which in today's money, or approximate in today's money, would be about £75,000. Okay? Bryce then accompanied this guy, Reggie Eckhart, to the site, which was a 14-acre strip on the north coast of Jamaica, about 500 yards long, 200 yards deep, alongside the village and harbour of Orcabessa. And there is what, you know, GoldenEye, the house, was, was eventually built on. Um, this is what uh, Parker writes in his book. Out to sea lay a stunning view of a tranquil aquamarine bay protected by a broad and tangled reef some 20 yards from the coast. But here the land was high above the water, which lay at the bottom of a 40-foot cliff. Bryce and Eckhart crawled forward carefully to look over the edge. Below they discovered a strip of silver and the length of a cricket pitch. Uh, sorry, silver sand, the length of a cricket pitch. Bryce immediately envisaged stone steps descending to the private adult. About 10 feet out from the beach was a small rock supporting a single Portlandia grandiflora, a Jamaican native with large bell-like white flowers. Presumably, this qualified as Fleming's desired island. Tied to the plant was a dugout canoe, and swimming lazily toward the boat was a young naked girl. He'll adore this place, said Bryce. Tie it up tomorrow, Reggie. He was. I'm skipping ahead now. Uh, Fleming was delighted with the site that was acquired for him, and straight away he set the construction in motion, securing the services of Reggie Eckhart to manage the, product, the project, and appointing local architects Scoville and Barber to bring to life the sketches that he made in London. For Fleming, it was essential that the building should be simple, and that there should be no glass in the windows, only good old Jamaican jealousies. He wanted it, he later wrote, so that the birds could fly through, so he could live as much inside as outside. The cost of the build, which included a garage nearby with staff quarters, was another £2,000. So you're looking at a total of about 150,000 pounds in cost for wow. the property in the house. The design that emerged was indeed simple, even utilitarian, like Grant's villa from Russia with Love. Quote, modern, a squat, elongated box without ornament. The ceiling was built low of plain hardboard. As per Fleming's expressed wishes, the building was to be dominated by a large main room looking out over the sea with only insignificant and small bedrooms at the back. No cupboards were provided, just hooks for hanging clothes. The floor was painted navy blue. In everything, the emphasis was on simplicity and hardiness. There was no need for a large kitchen to fit fridges or other appliances. Fleming writes, Surely you eat fruit in the tropics, and fish, of course. We shall catch our own fish, fresh. They, the staff, will just need a stove and a sink. In the same vein, hot water seemed senselessly unnecessary, although he did later relent on this after a few years. Nonetheless, the plumbing remained rudimentary. Fleming later admitted that the shower and the lavatory often hissed like vipers and ululated like stricken bloodhounds. He also recruited a local carpenter to construct solid chairs and tables to his exact specifications. Bryce remembered the extremely uncomfortable dining table made to his own deliberately stoic design. Reggie Eckhart was instructed to hollow out an area 20 yards long and a dozen feet in width, stretching from the seaward doors of the main room to the clifftop to make a sunken garden. That was a bit of a job, he later reported. 
But Fleming called his new house Goldeneye, after a wartime operation that he had planned for the defense mm -hmm. of Gibraltar, should Spain ever enter the war, and because of the happy coincidence that Orcabeza meant Golden Head in Spanish. The name also contained a nod to the strange and, na and dark 1941 Carson McCullers novel Reflection on a Golden Re Reflections in a Golden, in a golden eye. eye. Yeah. Of course, much of the attraction of Jamaica was, at a, was as an escape from the cold of a London winter. In Dr. No, Bond is delighted to leave behind hail and icy sleet, where, quote, people streamed miserably to work, their legs whipped by the wet hems of their Macintoshes, and their faces blotching with gold, and revels in the velvet heat of Jamaica. In a later story, Octopussy, which I remember is one of your favorites, Josh, Bond <laughs> takes a back seat while Fleming describes the appeal of Jamaica right after the war to his central character, Dexter Smythe, who has just emigrated. Quote, Prince's Club in the foothills above Kingston was indeed a paradise. Pleasant enough members, wonderful servants, unlimited food, cheap drink, all the wonderful setting of the tropics. Dexter Smythe and his wife enjoy one endless round of parties. Yes, it was paradise, all right. While in their homeland, people bunched their spam, fiddled in the black market, cursed the government, and suffered the worst winter for 30 years. But Jamaica offered more than sunshine, rum, and cheap servants. In his memoir, Mitchell remembered fondly an earlier time when those generously red-splashed, uh, generously red-splashed maps which symbolized the power and influence of one small island were a fact of life. Others, including Fleming, shared this nostalgia for the years of greatness of the British Empire, which now seemed under threat. As Bond complains, Britain had only been bled pretty thin, had been bled pretty thin by a couple of world wars. In 1946, the country was bankrupt, rationing was getting even stricter, and class relations seemed in worrying flux after the social upheaval of the war and the election of a Labour government in July of 1945. So, Josh, in finishing, Fleming then looks, I think, to escape and retain a sense of imperial connection, doesn't he, by moving to Jamaica. <laughs> and, I, and I wonder if this is a good place to try to make links with Golden Eyes. You know, the house being what it is and what it was desired to be, I suppose, as this sort of still imperialist uh, bastion, if you think of it that way. But what's your take on the property or the state of affairs or where you think Fleming's head was at? And can you make a connection to the idea of... Uh, a post-Soviet Union film? That's, well, I that's think a big all, question. I'm aware of that. I think it's about ideals. I, I think that this colonial uh, um, paradise that Clement envisioned for his GoldenEye estate, I think that's kind of the that's the dream that was lost, I think, that you see portrayed in GoldenEye, is that imperial world is now gone. And now it's just like corporations and there's no pride or integrity anymore. It's just all about the capitalism and money, both in uh, the Western world, the UK and, and America, and the same for Russia as well. Um, those old, there's a bitterness. Uh, there's a, a, feel of, a feel of loss, of, uh, of isolation. And I think you can connect your description of GoldenEye, uh, the, the estate, as to the ideal that was lost. Mm, I, I, I can't really stress that further. <laughs> no, no, fair enough. I mean, I, I realize it was a challenge. <laughs> that was a mouthful of a question I asked. You me. mentioned about uh, the Operation GoldenEye, too. And one thing important to mention about that thing is that Gibraltar was very important to the Allied war effort because during, like, when they set up the first invasion of Africa, um, like North Africa, for, you know, and, and whatnot, that's where Eisenhower was stationed, was mm -hmm. under was under Gibraltar, so mm -hmm. you, you can see how big wig Fleming was at the time. If he was in charge of protecting Gibraltar from the possibility of Franco's Spain 
joining the Axis powers. Very true, yes. But also, later, it was during the Suez Crisis that the PM visited Goldeneye. That was his kind of mental health break. So oh. Fle Fleming certainly travels in circles. The book is uh, it comes very highly recommended by myself. I really enjoyed it. It, it. it goes through all of the, you know, not just the construction, the building, the history of, of Goldeneye, but more importantly, the relationships that he had and what was going on in Jamaica at the time. Lots of interesting Jamaican history and context. And, and of course, the writing of all the Bond novels took place there. And so you get a yeah. really nice, really nice cross section of, of different texts, you know, that, that Parker's drawn on. So thanks to him so for, the, for some of that info. Yeah, it's a fun read. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Anyway, so there you go. That, that's as best as we can do, as best as we're going to do, I should say, uh, to connect to Fleming and his life. Uh, because he was long gone by the time Goldeneye came out. And <laughs> the only thing that Fleming had, apart from the Bond character, was the name of the, the property that gave the name of the film. So earlier in the week, Josh, I interviewed our grandmother before we started, obviously, this episode. But I, I called her and let her know that Goldeneye was the first film and she wants to be involved in some way. Our grandmother's, oh. our grandmother's 93 years old, remember? We mentioned her in the uh, previous episode about how important she was to us getting involved in Bond. And so I thought yep. I thought any chance to get her, you know, uh, her, her thoughts on this would be awesome. And it'd be a fun little thing to do. So, yeah, here we go. Uh, a, a little conversation I recorded earlier this week with my grandmother on the subject of Goldeneye, and I will put this out there. Okay, this is this has been heavily edited because most of the most of what she wanted to talk about was Sean Connery or Daniel Craig. Okay, so that might give you some indication as to where this conversation is going. But uh, it's 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 a good laugh, and uh, hey, we hope you enjoy it. Uh, did you get a chance to watch uh, Goldeneye? Yes, I did. I liked that one. Yeah. I always did like that one. And what what were your opinions of it then? Uh, the opening scene was really terrific. What you the, know, with, the, the with, jump? Yeah, the, you know, the plane bit. Remember the, the beginning of the plane? He jumped off the, the cliff into a plane and and prevented it from. Crashing, you know I mean? That was a bit ridiculous. It was more than a bit ridiculous, actually. <laughs> yeah, good entertainment, but very ridiculous. I know, but it was, it, it was, you know, more mind-boggling. It was, it was an impossibility. Uh -huh. Yeah. So, what? You, you didn't think the bungee jump was impossible? I did what? The bungee jump was okay with your with your reality, was it? Oh, I, I wasn't impressed with that. It was the plane that did it, I think. Mm -hmm. Anyway, in in terms of in terms of Goldeneye, just to just to get a couple of more um, more firm opinions out, what did you think of the 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 girl? I tried, but she's the one that yeah, I liked her. Yeah, she was she was the the, the uh, Russian girl, wasn't she? Yeah, that's right, the Russian girl. That's right, and then that silly guy was, was twisting the the, the uh, pen all the time. Uh huh. What, what was his name? Because he, uh, he's in a lot of films now. Oh yeah, yeah. The actor's name is um, Alan Cumming, the Scottish actor, uh, and he played yeah, yeah. he played the guy Boris, the computer uh, technician or guy. whatever. That's yeah, right, programmer. Yeah. So you liked him, huh? That, that, 
A, a nice freak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, I like him. I thought he was, he was uh, appropriate for the role anyway. And do you buy Brosnan in these scenes of action? Did you, did you, did you see him as a good actor? Because he came from the Remington Steel days, right? Yeah. So were you happy with him? Not really. I know I didn't. Uh, not, I, Daniel Craig is the one that, that impressed me with the, the action, you know, films. Yeah, it sounds. It sounds to me like you have a crush on Daniel Craig. Well, it, it, this is what I'm trying to say. I, I because number one, he was blonde, and it, so it's totally opposite of James Bond. It took me a long time to to you know put him in that role, but at the same time, his acting was so good that I got drained into it. Hmm. I'm just conscious that, you know, we've had conversation now about Goldeneye for a few minutes and you've spoken more about Daniel Craig, so... No, I, 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 I didn't get into Pierce Brosnan as 007. Never, really. Not really, no. Because mm. Pierce was, uh, was always a pretty boy before, you know, he became 007. He was a pretty boy, and he probably still is the the best looking man to have played the role. You know, yeah, well, but he, but he portrayed himself like that too, and it seems like he never got off it. <laughs> so, give me your feelings on Judy Dench as M, because this is the first time we see her. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, see, I um, that didn't bother me one bit. I kind of like that. I like, of course, I, only because I like Judy Dench, I guess. Well, no, I, I mean, I think there's something in it having a female M, and, you know, the way she speaks to Bond at the beginning of the film, talking about yeah. he's, a, he's a dinosaur, he's a misogynist, yeah. you know, he's a, he's a relic of the <laughs> Yeah, Cold that's War. true. Yeah, that was true. I like that bit. Mm -hmm. but, but towards the end of it, 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 they had a great relationship. Yeah, not not so much the end of this film, but the end of their tenure the together. Series. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they did. Mm. They sort of came to understand. She was out how many years was she in? Well, she she only exited the films um, recently with uh, Skyfall, right? When she died in Skyfall. Yeah. But yeah. Mm. So any okay. other any other things stand out about Goldeneye for you? Not really. No, you mentioned uh, it. Unless you mentioned it, but, well, but I mean, the whole, the whole thing from beginning to end, I, I enjoyed. All right, so it was an enjoyable film, but not one of your favorites. No, not really. Yeah. And you, you, you seem to like the action parts of it more than the romance. Yes, I do. I, I, mean, I like the way they they, they do their, their action parts. Some of them, are, you know, like, like uh, Sean, for instance, when I think about him at the beginning, I thought, after reading the books, you know, that he was the epitome of James Bond, but but he certainly, uh, there was no action film at all mm -hmm. that impressed me, like like uh, towards the end. Like the ones we've you know, when, when Daniel Craig took over. What did you think of the, uh, the performance by Sean Bean, the... Um the English actor who played Double O. Yeah, well, that's the first time I saw him. I remember, if I remember correctly, but I don't. Not really. No, I don't think I was terribly impressed with him. No, I didn't think he was a great villain. The idea of having a, an MI6 agent turning and then working against. No, I didn't like that part, though. All right. 
So the villain, not very impressive for you. The girl, that henchman, you, you quite liked her, the Russian girl. Yep. And you liked the opening bit with the, the jump. With the plane. Yep, yep. <laughs> even, even though you thought it was ridiculous, you said it was good action. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, you couldn't... I, I was more impressed by how they filmed it more than anything. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good <laughs> sequence for sure. Um, what about the song and the title sequence? The title, the credit sequence? Didn't hear that. The song. What did you think of the song by Tina Turner? Oh, okay. I don't, no, I don't. I don't remember. Oh, so remember. How did it go? <laughs> sing it for me. <laughs> I'm not going to sing it for you. But um, it's... Who can sing like Tina Turner, you know, really? Um it's uh oh it was it Tina Turner? Yeah, Tina Turner did that one. It well, written... if it was Tina Turner, I liked it because I like her anyway. All right, fair enough. It was written by uh, Bono and the Edge from U two. Okay, I couldn't remember. Well, I know that um, Tina was a, at the. I remember at the time being impressed with the song. Okay. Sure. Okay, it was but, Tina Turner. But having watched it this week, it didn't last on you. It didn't stick to you. No, no, not really. Not like some of them. Some of them were gorgeous. Yeah. So, do you have um? Any overall like recommendation for Goldeneye? Where does it sit on your list of James Bond favorites? Near the top, near the bottom, in the middle somewhere? Oh, yeah, in the middle somewhere. I mean, I can think of maybe one or two that are you know better that I enjoy. Well, uh, Goldeneye was released in 1995, which was six years after the one. Previous, which was licensed to kill by uh, with Timothy Dalton, and okay. in those six years, there was quite a lot of controversy about the James Bond franchise, and and there was a lot of argument and court settlement and things between studios. Really? Exact, yeah, there was a there was a lot of tension going on at the time, which is one of the reasons why it took a long time for the film to eventually. But I thought they had to to, to buy always from his estate. Well, I tell you what, Josh is investigating the pub, um, the production side of things, and so that's a question we're going to pose to him and see if his research has uncovered anything. Okay. We'll see see what. Wait, he, wait, wait, what did he have to say? Well, I don't know. We'll have to wait and hear what he has to say. That's why I say wait until we yeah, find out what he has right. to wait, say. Wait to see what he's got. But okay, okay. Do you, do you think then that as a long Bond uh, James Bond fan? That waiting six years because that was the longest time anybody had to wait at you know since the films began that was the longest really period. yeah that was the longest period of waiting between films would you would you feel like it was worth the wait Goldeneye oh, I, oh sure I mean I'm all for the, the films but it's just that uh, the, the, you know the longer you waited the more they changed it. Mm-hmm. Well, at the end of our show on Saturday, we'll be selecting our next film to watch, and I'll definitely be sure to give you a call and let you know what one that is so that you can tune in with us. Okay, Darren. All right. That'd <laughs> sound, be lovely. That sound okay? Yeah. Okay. Nice, nice talking to you, dear. <laughs> you too. I love being involved, too. <laughs> oh, it's good fun. It's great to have you on board. All right. We'll talk to yeah. you soon. Yeah. Oh, lovely. Love you. Love you, too, dear. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Take care. You, too. So there you go, Josh, our grandmother telling it like it is. 93 years old, still sharp as a tack. 
Yeah, yeah, that was that was good fun talking to her. And I should also say, I've got more general comments from her on on uh, on record about just James Bond in general and kind of like her feelings towards the actors and her feelings of the films and stuff. But I'm gonna save that I think for later on. You know, let's just go episode yeah. by episode and see see how much of this we can we can squeeze out. So was was uh, any was any of that surprising to you? No, not at all. Actually, uh, the Daniel Craig stuff I saw that coming from a mile away. Um... And uh, I liked how we were both in agreement that the bungee jump was cool, but the plane sequence was ridiculous. Yeah, we all sort of saw that, didn't we? We did, yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, I was actually surprised that she hasn't, she has a pretty low opinion of Brosnan as Bond. I thought she liked him as, as, Brosnan, as Bond. Maybe she just enjoyed the movie at the time when I was watching it with her. And maybe I, and I never really delved into the nuances of what she thought of him as a, as a James Bond uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, re- replacement yeah maybe so but just getting back to uh getting back to something you uh, about her opinion and my opinion and your opinion of of that that beginning i mean it don't matter if you're old don't matter if you're young you know a truth is a truth is a truth and that scene and it's what works about it what doesn't work about it, it transcends doesn't it audience and age like there's a part that works and there's a part that doesn't really work it does absolutely. It just shows that we're all kind of wired in the same way, you know. Even though we want to, we want to admit it for some certain things, but we see every, you know, we see things that work for us and things that don't. Mm-hmm. And in most in most cases, um, if if someone can point that out, then obviously, you know, there's something that can be approved upon. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I also think it'll be nice to see what she thinks of our next film. And so, as soon as that's decided, I will give her a shout and let her know. So there you go, the Granny O feature of Bond by Numbers. Just a fun little extra. Hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> so, personal highlights and lowlights. Here we are, Bond by Numbers number eight. Personal highlight, I would say the uh, the sequence beginning with uh, Dmitry uh, Mishkin uh, interrogating him, Ormov coming in, uh, the whole shootout sequence and the tank, uh, that part was probably my favorite part of the whole film. Um, that's my that, that's my highlight. And second class highlight would be, if, if I can say that, would be the bungee jump at the beginning. Okay. I, I did like the, the, the bit at the beginning. Um, <clears throat> however, my highlights, I have two. I, I don't think there's a better scene, a better acted scene in the entire film, and I mean the entire film, than the Judy Dench Pierce Brosnan scene at the beginning. I I would yes. watch that. I can watch that and not get bored because there's always something, some little thing to get. And I think Judy Dench has got such gravity on screen. She's she's excellent in this role. Oh yeah, she's e- magnetic, absolutely. Even out of the gate, she's excellent in this role. Yeah, you're like, like she's awesome. Like yeah. right away, she gets better. Maybe she gets wor- you know. I mean, she has better moments. She has worse moments. But just coming straight out as the new M, she's good. Like she owns the role. I'm sure she was oh. nervous as an actress, but she she really did a great job. Yeah, she's pretty proud of herself. Like those kind of roles for someone of her caliber, I mean, are probably, you know, they're convenient and they probably, you know, pay off uh, bills for the year. But um, I think she did a great job and I think she put her heart into it. Even if she might not realize that she did, I think she did a fantastic job in that role. And that is a great highlight. Yeah. I am jealous of of your highlight. I I went for bald action and you went for uh, integrity and uh, nuance. Look, so good for you. My highlights, okay, my highlights were separated by a comma. And right after the word Judy Dench, I have prison archive escape. Because that, that that's the best action sequence in the film, I think. Uh, I do like the stuff at the beginning. Uh, the stuff at the end is just a little bit too Wile E. Coyote for me, to be perfectly honest. Um, yes. 
you know, it's it's a bit silly. But I love the fight. Like, the, you know, there's part of it. Part of that great denouement is really good, which is the fighting that takes place in that little hut, you know, up in the, uh, as we've already cited, up in the dish. But no, I, I like the prison escape, I think, uh, the archive best. And Judy Dench scene is, is really good. I mean, we're, we're just picking a couple here. I mean, obviously, there's lots yeah. of good parts and, and not so good parts in the film, but... That those are that's my take anyway. Do you have another okay. one? If if I asked you to push to two, would you would you pick a second one? Uh second highlight. I think the scene with um, with Robbie Coltrane as Valentine and mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. Bond in in uh, Valentine's bar. I think that was a really good scene. A lot of tension there. Great yep. actors working together. Yep. And you have the, that wonderful comedy of like Minnie Driver doing the Tammy Wynette strangling the cat, <laughs> strangling mm-hmm. Tammy Wynette. <laughs> yeah, that's um, good. Yeah, I, I, that, that was a fun cameo too. Because uh, because she was in a lot of movies at that time, like Goodwill Hunting, and, and uh, I guess that she just managed to fit that in as a cameo role. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm gonna see if I on, on the next show we have. I'm gonna see if I can find information on Minnie Driver's um, role in that movie, just to give just like for a fun tidbit that we can use to follow up sometime later. Um, but yeah, that would be my second favorite scene. Okay, and in terms of lowlights, oof. In a way, her singing that song is kind of a low light too. Um, but yeah, I would say, uh, the, the, I would say, the, I would say the, the scene um, like regarding you know like how Bond gets to the the train so quickly with with the tank. Uh, that to me was kind of ridiculous. And uh, to be honest, I like the archive sequence. I don't like the train sequence. The uh, the the tank sequence very much mm-hmm. i know it's kind of fun kind of old school bond but i didn't think it fit that movie yeah it seems like something that roger moore would do more so than bros <laughs> the new bros and they're trying to the new bond that they're trying to uh propose to us i, I kind of like the tank scene i felt it it got a little bit silly but i i didn't i didn't mind it it certainly wasn't as good as the archival escape no uh my low light i would have to say the seven yaya stuff i i just wasn't really all that interested and maybe it's because watching it this time I was a, I remembered how long it was, and yeah. I felt like it took a long time to get stuff started. I also didn't care much about the whole the helicopter stuff. That kind of bored me a bit too. So yeah, if if looking to find lowlights, it would be it would be that the the tiger helicopter stuff and the the Severn Yaya. You satellite. could argue, you could argue that the lowlight for you in this particular case would be after the the the, um, the, the scenes following the the title song leading up to the end of the Severnias sequence. Yeah, I guess a very extended motivating incident. And yeah, I, I found that a little, a little tough, I must say. So I, I don't think this film is terribly well paced and perhaps we mm-hmm. could, we perhaps we could use that as a, a segue into our, our ninth number, our ninth uh, and perhaps most important sequence. If you want to, uh, is our money penny scoring. Why money penny scoring, Josh? Money Penny is, of course, the famous secretary of M. Um, it just fits the, you know, it's just it just fits the, um, I guess, the word that we needed to make the scoring and the numbers seem fun. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, yeah, we, we're 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 going to look at three different sections. If you yes. have listened to things we've done in the past, we we really tend to uh, analyze quite deeply. But what we're what we're going to try to do here <laughs> is is just look at story, acting, and atmosphere. And, and I would like this section because we we are the evil queen of numbers. We are. I guess we are the <laughs> evil queen of numbers because I, I guess we're so used to it, aren't we? Like formulaically, 
all of our series have kind of scored things. And this is going to give us an index. We like indexes. I'm not going to make an apology for it. You know, I mean, we, I like numbers and I think they're good. They're fun. They give us something to yeah. quantify our discussions over. And we're, we're looking at 24 of these films. So we might as well have some register of ranking. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go into our, so the Money Penny scoring, they're all out of 10. We have three segments. We have the story, which is like narrative, plot, uh, original slash adapted screenplay, the pacing of characters, etc. cetera. Uh, second sec- section we have is acting. So we have uh, acting of the, evaluating the bond, actor of the girls, the villains, the henchmen, allies. And then another, uh, and that's out of 10 as well. 10 money pennies. Mm-hmm. And then we also have the atmosphere, the location, set design, the music, camera work, special effects. So that uh, is our 30 money pennies that, that we that, that we can allot for the scoring. Well said. Yeah. Money pennies, the currency of our rating system. So I'll yeah. go first for the story. Um, How many I, money pennies are you, are you giving the story? I'm only opening my wallet for five money pennies with this one. Oh, I was one dollar more generous. I, 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 yeah. I'm going to give it six out of ten. Yeah, time. I'm giving it five uh, for reasons I hope have already been cited. I, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel like if story is where we're looking at narrative and pacing and things, then this film has got some problems there. Uh, I, I feel like it, it's it's longer. It almost feels longer than it needs to be. Particularly the opening section takes, for me at least, takes me a while to get into this. There are some quick movements that get me picked up again, but there are even some slow moments to the, to the, the, the filming in the Russian scenes, you know, I find like there's some slowness there as well. And so this is really, I think, a, in terms of pacing, it's a, it's a tale of two stories. You've got, you've got quick and exciting and moving excellently, just what I want and have come to expect from Martin Campbell. And then these sort of extended crescendo scenes that I find are really quite dragging and amplified to, to really no end, you know, uh, sorry to no to no, no merit overall. Yeah. That's kind of how I feel with that. But the story is also about how interesting is the story. And Trevelyan as a character is interesting, but I don't like the way they've written him to be a sex pest. I don't like the way they write so many false opportunities to kill Bond into this. Like, I find that that just gets a little silly. Like, this guy can't be that clever because he doesn't take, he doesn't really get rid of his biggest threat. And his biggest threat, like, is is he really even interested in being a villain? Or is this whole thing just to get Bond back to look at what he's done now? Is he just an enormous, insecure freak, you know? Yeah, I, 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 I feel that way. Um, I think I don't, I didn't dislike the pacing as much as you did. I, I was kind of, I guess I've seen the movie so many times in the past that it didn't really bother me too much. But I do, but more than you pointed out, though, I do feel that that's where the movie kind of, to me, uh, legs is that, sequence at the, the scenes following the opening t- t- titles uh the, the establishment of all the characters and what they're doing at this time bringing bond into the modern world they had to fulfill that objective uh so they had to have those introductory scenes to establish the new bond in these moments um but at the same time they're also juggling with establishing the plot of the film and i feel that maybe they tried too hard to establish an atmosphere in the in, in that film as opposed to really focus on the story and make it tighter mm-hmm. And I also think, personally, that the reveal of Trevelyan falls flat because we don't see him since the beginning of the opening sequence. We have a bunch of lines indicating, you know, like, Bond, you know, don't blame yourself for killing Trevelyan. That's what M tells Bond, right? But then, so, but even then, is that a Chekhov's gun say, indicating that we're going to see Trevelyan again? I didn't really feel that. 
And so, and the narrative, and, and the way the, the show, the movie is paced, doesn't does really give us that when we have the big reveal of Yanis being Trevelyan. I think it would be more interesting if, I, I don't know, if perhaps the sequence where Trevelyan dies occurs later on in the story, and it's like it's almost like it's a betrayal, a more immediate betrayal, like a, kind of like a Mission. I think a Mission Impossible movie could have done it better. I guess I could say. <laughs> okay. Well, what about the acting? What do you think? The acting, acting is the strongest. Is uh, the acting? I gave uh, I gave a seven and seven point five on the acting out of ten out of ten money pennies. Seven and a half, yeah, seven and a half money pennies. I want to give it an eight, but I don't think it fully deserves it. I, I like I found that uh, Famke Jansen, Pierce Brosnan. Uh, Judy Dench, they were really strong, and they carried the movie through this acts. Isabella Skrubko, I guess for her minimum experience being an actress, because uh, she was a model, for what I understand, um, as most Bond girls usually are, uh, she was serviceable. I found she brought on the emotions good enough in certain sequences, and I, I, I kind of I liked her, but it was a very superficial kind of... There, it didn't really go into, into the depths with her, you know what I mean? They didn't really explore her too much. And I found that even though Alan Cummings is a good actor, I found that his Boris was kind of one note. He was basically just trying to be like the typical computer hacker. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, he's he's a Russian, but he has American like qualities to him. You know what I mean? Like it, it just kind of seemed uh, they're trying to th- throw this throw the image of a stereo of, of I guess of a Westernized Russian into his character and with some other characters in the story. Yeah, um, and he is a token character. He is a, a computer hacker who is, or what, which is rather, itself a very stereotypical figure of the time. You know, that this is the mid-90s. This kind of stuff is becoming more and more prevalent in film. That's right. Also, I want to give, uh, you know, uh, props to uh, Chekhov Kario in a small role as Mishkin. Um, Jodan Baker is great as Wade, and, and uh, Robbie Coltrane is really good as Zakowski. I found overall, this was a really good actor's movie for a Bond film. Yeah, because even, even Godfrey John, you know, even Godfrey John is good as Ormov. As Ormov. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. What, what have I seen of Godfrey John in before? It really bothers me. Like, I, I don't know what have you been in. I know he's passed away, but... Mm-hmm. I agree with everything you're saying. The, uh, the acting is the strongest part of the film. I didn't go 7.5. I just went for a solid 7. I thought okay. it, I thought it was good. There there is a scene though that I want to talk to you about. Uh, Famke Jansen is convincing. Skaruko, yeah, she's good. She is good. There's absolutely nothing really wrong with anything she does. It's just whether or not you're buying her in the action that the story yeah. ri- has written for her. You know, um, Bean was good too. I'll add that as well. Bean was good, but I found that they never explored him enough to to make him awesome. Like he could have been awesome. Like yeah, a, he, like he could have been, like, but. Mm. It could have been a real kind of like meeting of the minds, like a full. I I didn't get the feeling that he was a full rival. Until like that last fight at the end, you know what I mean? And I think that's partly because they were playing or they were hedging a lot of their bets on the surprise factor and us caring yes. uh, caring more than we probably did. Because I don't think the rest of the film has helped in, as you just said a few moments ago, I don't think it's helped in making us remember him that much. But there's a great scene. in One of the things I like about the Ser- uh, the Severn Yaya stuff is when Famke Jansen comes back from like, no, she, no, at the beginning when she kills all the people, right, on, on, the, on the floor of the... Uh, has her orgasm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and Oromov looks at her, right? And it's a nice little <laughs> acting moment. He looks at her like she is actually really nuts. <laughs> and I think Oromov that's... Oromov great. He's very subtle. Yeah. I thought... More, yeah. more props to Godfrey John. There's there's another thing, too, about... Um, I, I, that I've, I've noted here. That... About... Uh, Alec. Or Alec's character that... Is kind, kind of makes him even more of a typecast. It's like... 
because he has a scar, we can now dislike him more. Do you know what I mean? Like that that's a, <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's a pretty silly it's almost an immature trope too, isn't it? Yeah, he's scarred. Uh, he's, he's a scarred, handsome man. So obviously, he is a good guy turned evil. Yeah, we get it. Yeah, it's easy. And, and then, as you said, they made him also kind of like uh, uh, also also as you said, a sex pest as well. Yeah. yeah um, totally so they they, they 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 villainized him way too much. Uh, the best villains are the ones that believe what they're doing is right, mm-hmm. and you emphasize what they're doing, even though you don't agree with it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Those are the best villains, and I, I think that's where Trevelyan f- falls short. I agree with you 100%, because I'm not quite sure if he wants his plan, or if he wants to screw around with Bond, or if he wants to, you know, like, take advantage of girls. Like, I'm not quite sure what his thing is. It's it's not quite clear. Um, or if it's like, I hate England. Like, that seems to be part of it, but is, is that yeah. really it? Uh, one other thing about the acting, though, I love... Desmond Llewellyn in this film I think this oh, is, I yeah. think I think he's excellent here and one of the reasons that I really liked him at least I think the best line in the film actually belongs to him and I know that it's a setup joke I totally know it where where uh, after uh, after Q is you know thrown the explosive pen right and by the way he fires a missile off in front of like all of these working colleagues like that's pretty dangerous. <laughs> that's pretty dangerous shit man but anyway it doesn't matter but he throws this pen away right and it explodes and then Q says, don't say it. And Bond says, well, the writing's on the wall. And Q says, yeah. Al- along with the rest of him, right? But yeah. the reason I love that is because if you watch that scene, Desmond Llewellyn is laughing and he looks and sounds as though he's actually really pleased to be there and to be acting in, and to be able to have that fun. Because yeah. all, all through the Roger Moore era, Q has to be a little bit upset and irritated with him right because he's the wisecracking yes. bond and q's like oh you don't take my work seriously but he gets the wisecracks here and and i think that's really nice and i think Llewellyn likes it he's laughing as he says it and it's a genuine laugh and i buy that from a guy who's you know he's a he's a standard bearer for the series isn't he he is he, since, since like since yeah he's like of all the he was a, he was the only one standing uh yeah. at the bonds at that time because mm-hmm. lois maxwell she's gone from the series uh, the, the other M's are gone, you know, like that, there was, it was a whole new cast and a whole new attitude. And yeah. he was the only, he was like the old guard remaining. So, yeah, I really liked him. Uh, even though Sarah pointed this out to me when we were watching it, he's very clearly reading cue cards as well from one of the, from one of his <laughs> oh, profile yeah. filming scenes here. Oh yeah. I, I can, I, I can definitely tell, I, I can definitely tell that. I found like his, there was a lot of saturation in the words he was and how he was saying things, you, you know, like I felt that he was kind of like, they they kind of like I don't think he's a great actor per se, and they just sort of brought him in there uh, because he's cute and mm-hmm. you know because yeah. the audience wants to have him in there they want that bit of nostalgia uh, from, from from the old Bond over so because the one thing they did carry over from the old Bond is the gadgets. Yeah, they sure did, and I know we probably Which, didn't go into in, into great detail about those, but we we can include those in the atmosphere, I guess, can't we? Yeah, it's part of if the set design. To. It's part it's of the, part set, of the set, yeah. set. The set, exactly. So anyway, exactly. I, I went for seven with my acting. You went for seven point five. For the atmosphere, um, I probably would have gone higher for this. To be perfectly honest, some of the sets are quite extravagant, and that's okay. I don't have a problem with it. Um, I, I find it quite self-referencing, though. You know, like the atmosphere to this film, like there, you know, with. Trevelyan saying, "Oh, no glib remark, no no pithy comeback." You know, there's 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 some real references to what Bond oh, is. Oh yeah, and maybe maybe it that totally is maybe that's deconstructionist. Because, 
because we've been away for five or six years, this is just a reminder of, of who Bond is and the types of things you can get used to in the series. And, you know, we, we've got to make a more concerted effort to remind you that this is a Bond film with a new Bond and everything else. But I, I think the music is really, really bad, uh, detrimentally bad. It it, it yes. does, as I said earlier, it, it makes a cartoon out of the opening, uh, the opening post-title chase. And unbelievably, uh, I, I think it, it continues to feature when... I know that John Altman is it John Altman? Is he the director or the musician? What's his name? One of the, one of the guys was brought on to write extra music for this. I can't remember. Some somebody was brought on to write uh, some extra music for the the St. Petersburg stuff because ah. the Eric Sarab music was so poor. I'll have to consult our earlier show where we looked at the music of the Bond series to to find out. I wonder sure, if but... that person is responsible for the Goldeneye Overture then, which is, sounds totally different from what um, Martin Sarab writes. You know what I mean? Uh, it could be. Could be. I thought that the atmosphere was nice, though, with lots of tracking shots. Um, the editing was, in some places, very, very sharp. And yes. although I had problems with the, the geographical inaccuracies of some of the storyboarded scenes, you know, like we were talking about with the tank and we were talking about with the beginning, um, overall, I thought it, w- it was good. But the music did bring it down. The music brought it down for me big time. Mm, I yeah. Mean, I went overall in and because the music is such an important part of the Bond series, isn't it? Yeah, like it, it is. You need you need to have that texture, that 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 sort of aesthetic wallpaper to make you comfortable with where you are. And if you're not if you're not comfortable with where you are, then yeah. I don't know, man. Like, not everything has to be perfect, John Barry, but it definitely needs to be James Bond. And we only hear the Bond theme a few times, maybe one or two times in this in this whole thing. You know. Uh, it, it, yeah, I it's hate hidden. how it's hidden in a lot of ways. I, I just liked how Sarah used like little guitar bits and stuff. I mean, I never heard once, you know, Tina Turner's song, the, like the the, the 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 instrumental version of it at all through the entire through the entire film. Well, no, something we're used was, to. Yeah, came, in the Bond it came, films, it came later, and that was part of the problem, right? Sarah, to his credit, I suppose, didn't have an opportunity to integrate any of that because he wrote the score in isolation. And the yeah. song, the song, much like Skyfall, which we discussed um, in our earlier series, that was written outside of Newman's ability to write the score, and so he only had the song for a couple of weeks, so he could only do a cue or something of it. Yeah. And, anyway, I, 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 I went, that. I went six overall, and that brings my total score to uh, eighteen, uh, twenty. Sorry, what is that six and seven is thirteen, and no, and five is eighteen. So I'm, I'm eighteen. I, I agree with you. I am also at six out of ten money pennies for the uh, atmosphere. As much as I like the location, some of them, the, the like the statue graveyard, um, with all the you know all the Cold War relics in there, uh, the bathhouse um, staging, um, even uh, and and the and the dam, you know, at, Ar- at Archangel. Um, set some set designs. Like I liked how M's office is basically the same office. That we, I liked how, for example, Q's lab and M's office are the exact same sets, just redesigned from the mm-hmm. older Bond films. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at Bond sitting in, in his chair at the, and sitting at, at the desk towards M, the door is right behind him at the same place as it always was. It's just been changed over and refurbished. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, Goldeneye, is it a film that you should see? Yes. Pierce Brosnan is really good in it. Martin Campbell directs some good scenes in it, definitely. Robbie Coltrane, the acting is good in this film. You won't be bored watching the actors at do their work. The story, the script, is not, it's not great. Uh, I feel like maybe trying to bite off 
more than it can chew with the dissolution of the Soviet Empire or Soviet I keep calling it Soviet Empire the Soviet um, well it was, Union it was. It, it, yeah, yeah okay fair enough but I, I just feel maybe the film is trying to bite off more than it could chew and it lost some of the character writing the simplicity of what makes a good villain is lost in this film and yes. the, hen the henchmen work fine because they're acted well but yeah I, I don't know a little 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 too busy golden eyes a bit too busy for me and maybe that's a 90s thing and maybe i'm going to see that with all of these brosnans i can't remember but a little too busy this one i wanted something a little bit more streamlined i don't know i think that's a good question how torn ever dies and world's on enough is going to look to us will it be as busy as golden eye or will it be more they found their groove and are getting back into the old formulas and it's or will curious it be to see. even worse or will be even worse, yeah. exactly. We'll have to wait and see. Because this is a good film. It has some good action sequences and has some good acting. But uh, And it does pass. You know, an 18 or 30 is a pass. It's not a fail. But as a Bond film, I mean, all these films are good. But as, as a Bond film, because we are Bond fans. So even yes. like a 15 out of 30 isn't necessarily a bad film. It's just of, of, a, of the Bond films. This is not, this is not I don't think this is going to be one of the greatest. No. I hope, but I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, I, I kind of agree with you, and I feel that um, it'll be interesting to explore the other ones and see how they fare against it. Well, uh, that to me, Speaking sound, of which, <laughs> that sounds like a bit of appetite to get this roulette table rolling to see what our Woo! next film is going to be. So, unless there's any Daddy other... Need a new pair of shoes. <laughs> Are there any <laughs> other final comments on GoldenEye before I set this wheel to motion? What do you think was the sinker line of uh, of that of that movie? Oh, I already told you the one at the end about debriefing each other at Guantanamo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think no more foreplay. Uh, I, I think that was kind of weak. Yeah, yeah, okay, I can see that, but I, I don't, you know, I'm not looking at it from a historical point of view and thinking of yeah. what Guantanamo was now. I just thought that line was really stupid at the end, like. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was really dumb. But, you know, I remember other dumb lines from the Brosnan films that ended the films. So, <laughs> so you know, maybe this is something that happens now. Maybe... So, something, something in Turkey? Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, <laughs> let's, let's just see, okay? So, shall we do it? Yes, sir. Here we go. Inside, wheel is rolling, and the ball is acting. What will our next film be? 17. We are still bouncing. This is great listening, I'm sure. Number 15. What is our 15th James Bond film? That would be uh, Living Daylights. Awesome. Number 15, The Living Daylights. Yeah, so another Cold War kind of one. Only this, yeah. time, this time, the wall hasn't been taken down. The wall hasn't been taken down. And we got Timothy Dalton on the uh, on the stage. Wow. An interesting one-two punch to start, thanks to our roulette wheel. Yeah. I was kind of thinking, we, I was I was expecting to land on a Roger Moore one, to be honest with you. Mm, no, we... Uh, well, the roulette table does what it does. It know? does what it does, yeah. It's pretty clearly written here for me, Black 15, so that's where we're going next. Uh, and once again, guys, uh, listeners, thank you very much for sticking with us. These are the early baby steps through this new series. So we'll, we'll tighten up on our pacing and on our features. And uh, we'll be back with an even better episode for episode three in a couple weeks' time. And thanks to Jeff Chapman for his input and his, uh, his great chat earlier. Uh, we'll look to get him back. And, of course, thanks to Granny O for her wonderful uh, 
contribution after watching the film with us too. She's a, a stalwart figure in our lives and it's, it's fun to have her on board. Thank you for listening to our show. We really appreciate it. <laughs> Cheers, buddy. You have a good time and I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Aye, aye.